0: The tall grass. Wish I had a pilot on a podcast. Wish I had a strong donkey that can holler ass a travel with portable speakers. I wish I had a million dollars. I wish I had a million dollars. I wish I had a million problems. That way I couldn't pinpoint all a million outcomes. I wish I found a genie lamp. I wish them girls gave me them sugar like Beaver Man. Yeah. I wish I was a comedian. Late-night sitcoms syndicated on TV land.
1: I this well had water in it. These kids are stealing all my pennies. Focused on my wealth. You can help me wish, but I would rather wish the help. Like, it's like, I wish I wish. And every time we dive it feels just like
2: And welcome to the 31st episode of The Debrief. I am your host, Brianna Joy Gray. And this week, we are talking about whatever's on your mind, but focusing the conversation on the last episode of Bad Faith Podcast, on which we discussed the State of the Union and uh, got some reporting from two investigative journalists, Ken Klippenstein and David Sirota, who is no stranger to the podcast. Ken recently wrote a piece about the geopolitical circumstances that led to the current conflict, including this tug of war that's being played between Us, Saudi Arabia and Russia over oil supplies, an aspect of the conflict that I dare say has been somewhat downplayed by the mainstream media. And we also listened to a number of clips, mostly from Fox News, which really underscore the point that the Green New Deal and energy independence is not the path that people are trying to take to get out of this mess. Instead, there is an emphasis on using this opportunity to expand at home drilling Drill, baby, drill. Moreover, we talked about the State of the Union, the fact that progressives seem not to be highlighting this either, despite their uh, faithful tweeting about their commitment to things like the Green New Deal. And we did a little bit of interesting analysis about the State of the Union response that was given by Rashida Tlaib Uh In the response to that response from Pramila Jayapal, which seemed a little shady to me, let's start by orienting ourselves by listening to a clip that gives you background there, and then we'll get right into the questions. Here we go. Another thing that raised a flag for me was Pramila Jayapal's response when asked by Mehdi Hassan about uh, Rashida's
3: Speech. I just want people to understand the Progressive Caucus doesn't give a uh, a response to the president. We will all be out there talking about what we thought. And I believe that the president's going to raise some really important progressive priorities. That felt like
2: shade and distancing to me. Am I the only one?
4: No, that that, that was definitely shade and distancing. That is a, a a congressperson who is first and foremost concerned with supporting uh, her party uh, and, and her party's leader, and and my point in saying that is not to criticize uh, Pramila Jayapal on her policy positions on things because she's been pretty good on various policy statements. Tactically, though,
2: has that she? Shows, has she? Has I mean, she?
4: She's like, I mean, I'm saying on the uh, in general, has she been a fairly progressive member of Congress? Yes.
2: Fairly Ta- progressive, David. 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 You tactically, just, you have not been
4: somebody tactically. <laughs> She has not been somebody who has been willing, in my view, has not been willing to challenge her party in nearly as adequate a way as it needs to be challenged. And the, the, the lament is, is that somebody who leads the Congressional Progressive Caucus should be seeing their role as, my job is not to serve uh, this or that party. Right, to say
2: very leader. nice things about my, Biden. Right, she that's not. that, that shouldn't
4: be her job. That right. should not be her job. Right. And I think the, pro- the problem is, is that, the differences on tactics have started to become, in my view, a difference on values. My point in saying the Pramila Jayapal has been decent on you know t- supporting Medicare for all at least you know signing on to the bill. that's a values question, but the tactic question is, if you're not willing to challenge your party on those issues, then do you actually really stand
2: for? Right those and, and to that point, I would argue that no, absolutely no credit is due for giving lip service in that way if it doesn't come with a tactical follow-up. Yeah, so you're saying in, here... in
4: absolutely no circumstances no. does Pramila Jaya do you have to hand it to Pramila Jayapal? And you know what? I, Under I, no I, I, I can I,
2: I, I agree with you. I can, I can agree with you. All right. Under no circumstances do you have to hand it to Pramila Paul. What do you guys think? What's on your mind, Sean? Unmute yourself and let me know.
5: Hey, um... Thanks for taking my call once again.
2: Of course. What's on your mind tonight?
5: So I had a conversation with CJ earlier with uh, RBN. Mm -hmm. And we were talking about something that I talked to you about before. And I, like, whatever, something happened, like I got cut off. And um, I think that in order to build a leftist movement and a third party. I think we should design the third party like a, like a video game and
2: Say more. reward,
5: reward like interaction instead of uh, donations. So maybe like somebody could go on a segment with a YouTuber or something that's involved with the party and, um, you know, like I said, like just be extremely democratic and interactive. Nominate and, and vote on as much as possible. Um, you know, candidates, staff, um, cabinet positions. I think that gives people like a level of, of agency and, and a voice in a political system where half the people in the country don't vote.
2: Sean, help me understand a little bit better better what you mean. What, what do you mean give points when they go on uh, a show and, and rewarding them for being – I mean, I, in principle, I obviously agree with the idea that people who hold themselves out as progressive politicians should be engaging in independent media um, and that we should value their action as opposed to just their tweets or even their electoral successes – but I, I just want to understand better where you're coming from.
5: So started online, kind of like what what the People's Party did, um, but just you know like lots of Twitter polling, and like I don't know like I think you know there's there's like there's people out there who could like you know do the do the uh, programming work, but. You know, maybe you have a profile as a member of the party and you registered that you went to a bunch of, you know, events or you get points for sharing content and stuff like that. And the more you do within the party, somehow we keep track of that. Like, you know, like a social media in a way and you get credit for your level of activity.
6: Mm.
2: Well, I, I certainly think that there, you know, watchdog groups who do that amazing kind of work to let us know what people are really up to, reporters who comb through folks' uh, open secrets records and stuff really do help us to understand what's really getting done. I am having a little bit of resistance to the idea of gamifying it fully because when that tends to happen, what tends to be the case is that there points for going to a town hall then people figure out how to create a kind of a meeting that they call a town hall that has limited access and it's maybe covid so it's online and they can pop in there for 10 minutes and say they did a thing and you know what i mean so i i I agree that there should be metrics there should be ways to measure substantive engagement but i also don't want anyone to ever be going through the motions just so that they can get a good like printout score that isn't meaningful um, but maybe maybe I'm not fully understanding, but I, I appreciate that. And let's see if maybe some other folks
5: I can't, like, um it, it's not gonna it's not gonna be perfect. I mean nothing would be perfect, but you have to engage people. Half the country doesn't vote, and if they feel like they're a part of something and have a level of agency and a voice, there's a much higher chance of us actually getting back to a democratic society.
2: Sean, wasn't this an episode of Black Mirror? wasn't there an episode um where there was a a politician isn't this one with like there was like a animated bear thing and there was a truck uh that r- rolled around with the bear on the screen and there's a person inside controlling what it said and did and politicians were forced to, am i am i confusing two episodes there was like a politician that ended up having to like have sex with a pig on a screen I, I, this is many years ago <laughs>
5: I I don't know. I I pretty much just watch cartoons nowadays, so I I, I couldn't. (laughs) I couldn't tell you.
2: Yeah, but I totally agree with your general principle of trying of figuring out ways, creative ways to get people engaged. But it could be that I am just not fully under understanding what this would look like, or my skepticism is maybe misplaced. But I think that
5: ideas to go against the money and and the institutions. I mean, we're not going to be able to to do something unless we get creative. Like, we're not going to beat these people inside the political realm.
7: Sure, but isn't that the
2: conversation we've been having about about, um, labor strikes and obstructing capital and movements and, you know, decoupling people in those kinds of ways and making cases for getting money out of politics and all of those kinds of things. It does seem to me that that's a little bit more first order than, I mean, if you gamify the system but all of those other incentives are still in place i'm not i'm not entirely sure if that does what you wanted to do I, I i'm really not trying to be negative about this idea but i i just you know it's interesting to think about and maybe we can continue with a couple of other guests if you want other callers if you want to weigh in and give your thoughts about that sort of idea i appreciate you putting it out on the table sean
5: no problem thank you for letting me talk and keep going even though you're trying to move on <laughs>
2: all right thank you it. All right, Andy, you're up. What's on your mind? Hi, Brie. How are you? I'm doing all right. (laughs) (laughs) Chilling.
8: So I've been struggling with my feelings on the whole Ukraine situation. Mm. On on one hand, I'm not a huge fan of the way some people online, and I'm sure you've been seeing this on Twitter, uh, people who aren't exactly like pro-Russian partisans but seem to have some uh, callous disregard for the suffering of the Ukrainians and chalk it up to, well, they have neo-Nazis in their government and Eastern Europe is racist as hell, so I don't give a fuck what happens to them. But on the other hand, we've also seen what's been happening to black refugees trying to escape Ukraine and how they're being held up at the border with Poland and as well as, by, as well as how, by and large, Western media has covered the Ukrainian refugee crisis with a sympathy that hasn't been afforded to refugees from other parts of the world. And it's pretty obvious to anyone what's going on there. And honestly, it does have me feeling some kind of way, so... I've just been trying to negotiate those two feelings.
2: Well, how how have you been managing? What kind of things have you been thinking about? Uh,
8: I mean, it's just like, I don't know, because on one hand... I I I genuinely agree with the I guess you could call it the zeitgeist of like you know we we stand with Ukraine and this that, and the other but at the but on the in the back of my mind I keep I can't help but think about all the times we've you know either we are talking about Syrian refugees or we're talking about Central American uh, refugees at the southern border and the contrast in which you know the coverage is like I mean I, I mean it's, I think anybody can reasonably agree that the way those two those different situations are being covered very differently and I think it's I mean I'll just be honest it's because you know one of the one of those groups is white and the other one isn't I don't know
2: Yeah I was watching a video today that was very lovely of um I mean you know grand assault who knows what if anything that you see is what it appears to be given all of the Stuff that's gone down, ghost of Kyiv, blah, blah, blah. Um, But uh, the video showed um, Ukrainian refugees arriving at a train station in, I'm not exactly sure, maybe it was Germany. And uh, there were a bunch of people waiting for them at the train station, welcoming them to come and stay at their houses. And obviously that's lovely. You know, obviously that's lovely. But it is difficult not to think about, all the things that causes a person in a country where there has been so much anti-immigrant sentiment and that and there has been so much immigration over the years and so little of the coverage of it positive people in that country lining up to take strangers into their homes, which again, I cannot say enough. It's just an obviously, it's just so lovely sentiment, but how much the fact that the strangers are white <laughs> Uh, affects their decision to do so and the, or that the strangers aren't from a, a a group or a background religious or ethnic that has all of these stereotypes of criminality and otherness that are attached to so many of the rest of us in the world and you know i have those thoughts in my head and you're asking you're thinking about how to manage those well i'm managing them by basically not saying or doing anything i'm not going to retweet that video I'm not going to say anything negative about that video. There's nothing negative to be said, really. It's a lovely thing. I my my general posture when I'm faced with those kinds of moments is to just like do nothing and maybe talk in private with you know talk my frustrations out with people who understand me and wouldn't wouldn't take it the wrong way. Would would understand that I'm coming from a place of frustration about the broader zeitgeist and not any critical criticism of the human beings who are doing a very lovely human thing in that moment. But I, I definitely. I, I feel you. I definitely share those conflicted feelings and I'm not entirely sure what to do with them either.
8: Yeah, I, I agree. I agree with your take there. I think perhaps the best thing to do is just not opine, you know, not all opinions need to be aired out, you know, for <laughs> all on the internet to see. So uh, I take your point there. Thank
9: you, Bree.
2: Yeah. Thank you, Andy. Kusha, what's on your mind?
9: Hello, um, Brianna. How are you doing? I'm
2: doing well, thanks.
9: I'm glad to hear it. Um, it's a pleasure to be able to uh, be in dialogue with you today.
2: What's, uh, what are you thinking about?
9: So what I'm thinking about is what the title of your uh, video was on, Another Oil War. Mm-hmm. I'm really curious to know your thoughts about, uh, because I believe it's Ken Klippenstein who, I know it's him who you interviewed, and I believe he wrote an article. He was one of two people. I don't know who you wrote it with at The Intercept, basically talking about how, Uh, Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, is so responsible for the um, oil crisis in terms of the pricing, at least. And this is something that I've been trying to wrestle with because you have a guest you've brought on before who I follow on Twitter, and I look to for his advice quite often when it comes to the climate chaos, uh, Peter Mm Kalmus. And I'd really like to know your thoughts about the synthesis about the points I'm about to raise. So... On the one hand, we have a supply chain crisis, correct, as it's as it's deemed, right, in the sense that, like, I live in California, gas is often around five dollars a gallon right now, and so we see that these countries, despotic ones, autocratic ones, like Saudi Arabia and the Islamic Republic of Iran, have so much of the oil and gas of the world, right. And then on the other hand, you have people like Peter Kalmus who say stop all the oil and gas, fossil fuel industry right away, nationalize it, which I agree with. Like this is immediately it needs to be concluded and it needs to be converted to a green energy system, as you say, of solar, wind, geothermal, um, hydroelectric, so on and so forth. And then essentially what I think though is like, I, I, don't, I don't think I've seen Calmus do this. Maybe he has and I just haven't seen it. Maybe other climate activists have and I haven't seen it. But under the assumption that If you have a president with like a 100 days, say it's Marion Williamson, say it's someone to the left of Marion Williamson, what does that look like if you have 100 days to change the energy system of the United States, for instance, what's feasible within four years of a president and beginning with the first 100 days? Because why do I say this? Because obviously they all know and they've all said you're not going to change the energy system in one night, but you have to do a transition. So what I want to know is, and I want to know your thoughts on it, like how do you address the fact? of the pricing of the oil system, given that we live under a capitalist system and so on. But at the same time, people still need to have their oil and gas needs net, right? Met, right? It's not just your cars that you need to have oil uh, and such crude oil and such for. But Saudi Arabia is one, at the same time, people want to raise humanitarian concerns about the genocidal intervention in Yemen. Hundreds of thousands of kids starving in Yemen, the chopping off of heads every two or three days in Saudi Arabia. Furthermore, like the Islamic Republic of Iran, you don't want civilians to suffer under sanctions imposed by the United States and its allies, but at the same time, you want the global economy to be one where resources around the world can go to people who need them, right? And Iran is a very oil-rich country. My parents both fled from it. My dad was supposed to be executed. He was sentenced to execution by the Islamic Republic of Iran, and he fled mm-hmm. for his life. Uh, he was beaten in the street by passionate enforcers of it. But at the same time, I'm not saying sanctions that hurt the civilian population at all. I'm just saying that I know, as a matter of fact, if we have a supply chain crisis and the U.S. is prohibiting essentially Venezuela and the Islamic Republic of Iran from uh, providing the supply of oil, and Saudi Arabia's uh, dictators, uh, Salman bin Abdulaziz and Mohammed bin Salman, don't like being called out for the butchering of Jamal Khashoggi, among other—and Biden's very mealy-mouthed about it, by the way. He's very feeble about it, mm. by the way. But still, like they don't even like that. And so that's causing the supply to be reduced. So— it reminds me very much, and I want to end here and hear your analysis. It reminds me very much, because I read it during one of my college classes, this author named Robert Cairo, he's very talented. He's written four books about Lyndon Baines Johnson and one about Robert Moses, who's very famous for those who are familiar with New York politics, and how Robert Moses was responsible for the parks and the freeways and transportation and just about any major decision, oftentimes during his years, had to go through Moses. And Robert Caro said he took such an interest in power, political power, when he watched Robert Moses essentially make the decisions. And he saw like one discussion going on about, at one certain event, like, oh yes, if we put the bridge here or something like that, they were trying to discuss the logistics and engineering. And Robert Caro, the author, was like, you guys don't have a clue at all. It's whether or not Robert Moses wants this to get done that it gets done. And essentially, I think so much of politics is that as well in the world. In the sense, like, if Mohammed bin Salman wants to restrict the global supply of oil, he can do it. If the Islamic public of Iran and the United States want to do such, they can do it. If Biden wants to uh, make such um, aggressive statements about other countries, like during a State of the Union speech, like no more Russian flights, he can do it. And it's gonna cause big changes in the economy just like that, you know? And this is something that I think that's oftentimes – not that you do it at all. I don't think you do this at all. But oftentimes it's overlooked in the political discussion, just trying to make these trends seem like, oh, if you do some cal- mathematical calculation here or there and look at the economic numbers here or there, when there's so much element of the personalities of the brokers of power. I would love to hear your analysis, Brianna.
2: Yeah, so I, I'm not – you know, I, is your there, is there question whether I agree that there is a – I don't want to call it an interpersonal dynamic per se, but this is often about the personal dynamics between key leaders geopolitically that is driving a lot of these things. And that's being kind of obscured in this conversation about the
9: supply chain crisis. That's one factor, yes. And at the same time, it's the other thing I was raising just before that about what you would do, what your thoughts are on the switch to a renewable energy economic system. Oh, right. um, yeah, I think that's, a,
2: that's an interesting question, and I've, I've thought about doing an episode along these lines before, and I'm glad you reminded me that I should try to find some guests who could speak to this question of, you know, what does nationalization look like? How quickly can it happen? Let's talk about other historical instances. Let's talk about other instances in the United States. You know, I was on um, James Buffon's show a few days ago, and we were having this question and kind of reflecting on the Tennessee Valley Authority and these other examples of kind of nationalized energy and you know um, the the 2008 auto crisis and things like that and it doesn't, it seems to me when i'm listening to joe biden's speech at the state of the union and he's talking about how the we we have to um you know lower costs not you know have, have the 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 consequences of high costs being borne by Come, I forget. what this is a pity little saying? Is this like lower cost, not something else I forget? And thinking, well, what's the way to do that? You know, there's all this pushback against price controls, but there is a world where, if the state owned <laughs> the good, then they would could set the prices, and the uh, you know the country could be absorbing all of the um, the high costs right now, right? Um, and we can talk about MMT and Stephanie Kelton and all of those things, but I I cannot tell you I'm certainly can't speak authoritatively on what that looks like, but I definitely think that's an excellent idea for a podcast episode, um, and I think that you're right that having a conversation about what is actually driving these high prices. I you know part of why I wanted to have Ken on is I read his article and I was like oh this is a piece of the conversation that I absolutely don't see happening, and the dynamic of how Donald Trump's good relationship with Putin. As, as whatever you want to think about it led to him being able to get hit that support during the election season that he needed to lower gas prices in a way that Joe Biden has requested and not been able to get, you know, these are, I think, important features of this ongoing scenario that we have to understand to understand how to untangle it. And it is very frustrating not to see that covered in the mainstream media and for basically a week to have gone by before anyone is talking about this as an oil war. You know, I remember bringing it up in the, um, Matt Duss interview and it kind of got a little brushed to the side and I at the time you know it was only one day into my Ukraine, Ukraine self study and wasn't so confident about pushing back about certain things but it seems so evident to me now and it is very frustrating to see that the right very much sees this opportunity to push more domestic oil, oil production whereas the left doesn't seem to be grabbing the bull by the horns and making a strong case for energy independence So I appreciate you as always, uh, for calling in Kusha. And I thank you for reminding me that we need to do an episode about nationalization and
9: what it looks like. Have a great rest of your day. Thank you so much.
2: You too. Hey cuz what's up?
9: No much.
10: How you doing?
2: (laughs) (laughs) I'm doing all right. What's on your mind this evening? Um,
10: well, just, I mean, we're on the topic of energy. Um, one of the biggest things that ha- that has to happened too, if you're talking about like converting to actual like green energy, you know, actually being serious about it, is you you and we have to really get off of capitalism, like na- nationally and internationally. Be done with capitalism, because I mean what I mean you can't keep having what you're you're going into bullshit over oil now like well you've been doing it but we're still we're still messing with fossil fuels knowing what knowing that hey we're damaging the planet
2: yeah I mean you'll get no argument from me Eric
10: <laughs> I that oh yeah go ahead oh and that, that's kind of why, like, because I, I love to comment on your video about that. Um, and it got some interesting replies, and I'll keep them at interesting, um, about just, like, saying, basically, be done with, like, do a national and international eco-socialist Green New Deal and just get rid of, of permanently eliminate capitalism and get off fossil fuels. Just completely. I mean,
2: I, I think the thing is, Eric, I'm not sure what the nature of the comments were, but I think that, You know, no one on this call with the exception of I know sometimes we have a couple of conservatives. I know I love when Gregory weighs in and a couple of others, but no one like disagrees with you. So the question really is, you know, how do we get past the what I'm going to call, you know, squad tweet squad member tweet phase of this, which is, you know, this is the thing that we all want. To this is the thing that we all get. I don't mean to put this all on you because obviously it's not your job to no. sit here and uh, untangle the world's crises. Um, but I think that you know statements like "we get we need to get rid of capitalism" sometimes don't always resonate as strongly as capitalism is at, at the root of this, and a profit-driven system is never going to make the kinds of gains that we need in this moment. We had, you know, Kate Aronoff on the show, who's written a whole book basically about how we're never going to get to where we need to go in capitalism. And it's, it's it's it's, it's you're completely right. You know, I don't know, to, I really honestly don't know what to say to you right now. You're, you're completely right. The question is how? And that's like the ongoing process I mean, of this podcast. You know?
10: I mean, basically think about how, so instead of pulling like, this is kind of where I'm thinking like, a lot of it has to do with effectively manufacturing again. I mean, you have, I mean, you have the all the like the Midwest and stuff like that. That what could benefit easily. I mean, you we saw the damage. Obviously, the damage NAFTA's done. I mean, no one's going to argue that shit. And then you look at a state like Florida, my home state, lovely, lovely enough. Who could benefit from an eco-socialist plan that actually is centered around the environment. One of our biggest industries here is tourism. So I mean, I don't see I don't see it really as an issue as much as it is about showing people where I guess showing people directly through their life experiences and what affects them in their locale. Um
2: yeah. I, I mean, I, I think that's right. I think that's right, Eric. You
10: know, yeah. it's, it's just like, I, I, cause I, cause I saw some replies and I'm like, y'all are hung up about getting rid of capitalism. I'm like, bro, <laughs> bro. We're, we're pa- passes. I mean, between how many times you've had professor Wolf on, your, on bad faith between how many times, I mean, yeah this is unstable this system's these unstable. It's not the
2: same people eric these aren't people who are like long-time listeners no one like that would argue with you it's people who have stumbled across a youtube video or whatever and they don't understand you know i was having i i was having um dinner with a friend recently from high school and you know he's a nice guy but he doesn't know you know <laughs> and he's like in the consulting world and like that's his world and i'm you know, really would prefer not to talk about work or any of this with him. I'm just trying to have a nice dinner, but, you know, it comes up. And so I say a couple of my thoughts and recommend Anand's book and like, you know, he really wants to do good work and like hack parts of the, you know, hack the third world and, you know, innovate them out of hunger and all of this stuff. And I'm like, but don't you, I mean, you know, you know, we grew up, we grew up in Kenya together. You know that the root causes of these things are not going to be solved by some McKinsey magic. You know this, you know, like you've just articulated to me the, you know, the, the Naomi Klein case, the IMF coercion, all of the things that has got all of these global South countries in a vice grip. And you know, you're not going to hack your way out of it, but he was still having some difficulty going back and forth with me because what I was saying was so core it, it violated in such a, in a core way, his professional ambitions, his worldview. And when I started at high level with like, you know, capitalism bad, you know, it just, he kind of couldn't, he just kind of rolled his eyes at it. And I understood why. And it took I mean, us hours and hours of conversation to get to a place where we were kind of understanding each other, but still that's like, it takes a lot of work. You yeah, know, we it, spent our whole lives being told capitalism good.
10: I mean, I mean, come, I mean, come on, at some point, like, I am just I guess I'm coming at it Black History speaking like what our history has been the biggest cr- critics of empire I mean of all this all this imperialism all this bullshit I mean really like that at this point that's what I tell people I'm like go in Black History read shit
2: <laughs> yeah at, at this point I, 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 I hear you, Eric but is that is that are you finding that to be effective when you when you stop. save people. <laughs> Yeah, read I read Black I, History. Is that is that changing hearts and minds? I mean,
10: yeah, in some some capacities, I I admit it's not an, a universal thing. It's it's, it's, where, it's where like if I hear like, I guess it's it works among like people who watch some like lefty Twitch, some like actual like actual left like true like really left streams and stuff. And like actually, anti-capitalist left streams, and there are some right wingers on there. And I say the same thing to them, and I'm like, "Um, go read Black History. Yeah, you might want to actually do this."
11: <laughs> all right. Well, I I I,
2: I, I I I take that advice, and I hope everyone here takes that advice. That don't disagree with it. I think that is always a good idea to read Black History. But let's get some other people in this conversation right. and, uh, to weigh in. I appreciate that, Eric. All right, Sylvester, what's on your mind? What are you thinking about this evening?
0: Miss one point
2: five. <laughs> what's what Miss one
0: point five? One, 1. 1.5 million milli that network. <laughs>
2: <laughs> who's, who's saying this now? I thought the internet said hey, I was hey. at least worth at least five million. They lowballing me uh, now. <laughs> uh,
0: you know what the streets calling? Streets calling you, Brianna Bezos now. You know that's what the streets <laughs> is calling. You.
2: I am living that one bedroom life. I'm not going to lie. It's that luxe, lux, lux to... one bedroom
0: life. <laughs> I'm like, yo, this, you know, this calling gets over 200 get, again. We might have to start a worker co op in here. This thing keeps all popping off the way that it's popping off.
2: <laughs> You're hilarious. What do, what is, what's going on with you this evening, Sylvester? What's prompted you, you to you, call in tonight?
0: You know, you know what? This is, uh, e- even though when you know things, sometimes when you see it, it still kind of hurts you, mm. right? Mm during that, I'm going to go to just the State of the Union speech real quick. Mm, please. When Biden was talking about the fund them, fund them, yeah. and I looked to the right, I said, I knew Nancy was going to I knew she was going to stand up because she had just been itching and rubbing her knuckles together all night. I knew she was going to stand up. Mm-hmm. Then when I looked to the left mm-hmm. and I seen Cam Cam mm-hmm. stand up the way she did, mm-hmm. like, I know she a cop, but I'm mm-hmm. like, ain't no, ain't no shame you took the words out of my mouth i know she's a cop but i'm like but god damn, you know the akas are just rolling over in
12: their grave are they, you know? are they
2: are, are they? they are they rolling over in their graves or is this like the <laughs> boule way like this is all you know they got townhouses they got to protect
0: it, you, know, it, it, you know what you write about that Afl- they Afl- do black it.
2: people have always been conservative just like all affluent people are conservative
0: I'm like, damn! I said, That's because, you know, you know, we out here in L.A., I'm like, there's some way to put something up. They said just the sheriff department and the, the police department out here, L.A. County and then the L.A., you know, L.A.P.D., they got a bigger budget than Ukraine got in their military. Yeah,
2: I saw that.
0: That's nasty. Yeah. So I was just I was just I was heard about that. I do want to. I was heard about. that.
2: Yeah, too. let's let's listen to that real quick for folks who. um Blessedly, did not. Man, spend you be doing stuff watching. up quick. I mean, I've got a soundboard. I will say, I'm living that that soundboard expensive life.
0: <laughs> yeah, 1.5 million. Okay, basso, bring the up, BB.
2: Colin sent it to me for free. Okay, I don't know if that makes it better or worse. <laughs> okay, here you go. So, the answer is not to defund the police; is to fund the police.
7: Fund
12: them. Fund them. We should
2: all agree. Yep. The answer is to yeah, fund can. them. Fund them. Yeah. Fund them.
0: <laughs> That's the one thing he ain't slur. That's the one thing he ain't slur or slip up on is when he's talking about funding them police. So I just, I was just really disappointed. Even though I knew she was a cop, I was just really disappointed when she did that. I wanted to get that off my chest. But, um, to yeah, the, the, the thing is, the, here,
2: the bar is so low for her too that if she had just kind of sat she would have become a hero to a lot of people. Like if she had just been no, the they tiny her. passive. I know they would. I mean, they already arguably they're already trying to push her out. You know the whole media cycle of like where's all you know the 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 call is coming from within the house with all the dirt that was being leaked about her in these articles over the over the fall, but. In in a world where they really, if she really felt like this was the end of the line for me, I would like to think that she would do some kind of passive <laughs> resistance like that. But I honestly just don't think she has it in her. That has ne- she has never shown one ounce of the revolutionary spirit. I think her parents nah. sincerely had in her entire life. So, nah, she got it's co-opted.
0: Eh? Yeah, yeah and, and you know who else got co-opted? That I'm coming for, and I'm glad that you came for on the pod. I mean, on, yeah, on the on the Patreon, on the Patreon, um, was the.
2: Uh, Pramila. Mm -hmm. Yeah. She she gets too much of a pass these days. I can't be too loud about it because I haven't assembled all my evidence yet. But just between us, my inkling is that, you know, something's rotten in the state of Denmark. You know what I mean? Like something is afoot. Every time there's some story about progressive agendas being derailed and people, you know, the progressives being convinced not to force a vote on a $15 minimum wage and all of this, you know, Pramila Jibal is right there in the center of it. And I will never forget that she went on Marianne Williamson's show around the force of vote stuff and thought she was going to get a softball. And Marianne asked her very excellent pointed questions. Everyone should go back and listen to that interview from, I don't you know. got it queued up? January. <laughs> I do not have that queued up. And it's like an hour uh, long. So I can't okay. search around for that one.
0: Okay. The next check hasn't cleared yet. Okay. So i will <laughs> <done. laughs>
2: But she straight up, like she straight up asked her, um, why not force the vote? And she gave the Kevin McCarthy excuse. And Marianne did a little bit of better journalism than my friend, Ryan Graham over at the intercept and said, absolutely not. That is not an excuse. And Pramila Jayapal just flailed, you know, and she she just lied. just blatantly lied to Marianne's face. And it's one thing to like, not understand force the vote. It's even another thing to say, Oh, I don't like Jimmy. Dore. I mean, I'm really irritated by that line of reasoning, but okay, fine. Yeah. Jimmy Dore called you a name. What I can understand it, even if I don't agree with it. But just fully lying—that's that goes beyond you being goofy or dumb. That go thats wow. thats now you being nefarious. That's
0: complicit. You being yeah. complicit and all of that. So, see, you know, uh, her, and then she just be so happy. Oh, Biden told my mom that you know we gonna do this and stuff. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but you know, I was like you when you was telling David you know what, I'm a little bit hopeful when, you know, Rashida was talking about this working family party and this type of thing, so it made me it made me think, right? Now, I, I don't think everybody can do it, right? I don't think everybody can do it, but I think that there's I think the AOC, I think AOC's pretty safe, you know? I think Bernie is pretty safe. I think that there's certain progressives that are safe and I'm wondering why don't they all that money that they fundraise, why don't they put that into the community? Is that something that and start kind of building that infrastructure, like help build it outside to kind of show people like, hey, listen, like you know, we're not going to get everything that we're looking for from inside here. We still need that dual, that inside outside strategy. You know, don't you know? I, but we want to like really show y'all how different we are from the people that's in the progressive party, but then. They distance themselves from our comments when we make them about our, you know, reactions to the State of the Union and stuff like that. Why don't, you know, it's, why isn't that like a strategy that they implement?
2: Yeah, I mean, so for those who didn't listen uh, to the podcast yet, uh, there was this moment in the uh, State of the Union uh, a reply that, uh, Rash- Rash- ahead, cue, cue
7: up, up, okay,
2: up. let me see. I can maybe find this real quick. Let me just... yeah, I know you got. I know you got. Uh, it. Oh goodness gracious! Where did this come up in the episode? Goodness I think it was about halfway in, right before David left. Oh, here we go. Here we go. Here we go. Here we go. I got you. I got you. Hey, I know you do. That's why. That's why I put you on spot because <laughs> I know you're on the list, girl. <laughs> BB. Right, I'm old enough to remember. Oh, it's about to hit be. me with an ad. Okay, wait a minute. Sorry. This oh, freaking okay. This freaking YouTube life. Just give me four. Three, two, one. Just moved just moved okay, all right. Bernie Sanders did a response after that, and everyone said that that was doing a racism. So I'm fully supportive of anybody and everyone wanting to do a response. I think it's ridiculous that people make some these media narratives out of it. But I was asking myself the question, what is the purpose of this response? What is this doing? And there was one part of it that actually made me a little bit hopeful
12: as a leftist. I want us to imagine, just imagine a government where corporate donors don't drive health care, climate education and poverty policies where the working families of our nation really call the shots it's time it's time we had a majority in congress to fight for us a working families majority no matter who you are where you're from most of us want the same things a good paying job a safe community clean air and water good schools and a brighter future for our families enough to thrive not just survive. So what would a working families majority do? We'd work with President Biden to deliver for you and your family. We'd guarantee healthcare as a basic right, because after two years of this pandemic, we can allow corporate profits determine, to determine who lives and who dies. We'd stand up to big pharma and insurance companies, and we'd make drug prices for life-saving medicine like insulin actually affordable.
2: So I heard that. So I heard that. <laughs> and I felt like if it, even if she's not trying to do, you know, set up a subgroup, uh, you know, a party for a dirty break, that at very least she's trying to say that the progressive caucus is not voting as a block. and I said explicitly that it does not vote as a block. Anybody can be in the progressive caucus. It means absolutely nothing. And I'm trying to establish something that actually has standards that I am articulating for you now in this speech. And then later we play this clip at the top of the episode. Pramila Jayapal was asked, I guess before the speech by Mehdi Hassan, what she made of the fact that Rashida Tlaib was giving a speech. And she was very much like, Oh, that has nothing to do with the progressive caucus. That's a working families party. They're a separate group. I don't know her. Basically. And so, I don't know. Like, Obviously, uh, many leftists are going to say, it's too little too late, and I don't care if she's doing this at all. But there was something about her posture. She seemed so down and so broken. Like, there was something about her in that moment that looked to me like someone who was fed up and who was trying to do something that was really beat down. And maybe this is just the part of me that has always found Rashida Tlaib to be my favorite one.
0: Rashida with the (laughs) shits.
2: Like, she's
0: Rashida, been my favorite one. I like, I like Rashida, and then I, I like Corey. Those yeah. my, those are my, those are my top two where I feel like, you know what, like, they'll take it to the streets, you feel me? And I, I feel like they, I'm hoping anyway that they're trying to get to that point, but I'm just, again, I'm thinking a lot of different strategies because, like, really, honestly, like, on the federal level, when we talk about whether we switching over from, um you know, from fossil fuels to, you know, green renewable energy, and I even, like, I listen to that all in, podcast with chamath and when he said well why don't we just you know trillion dollars on um you know solar panels and stuff like that you know it, it would change the game and also it would help and then we'd save a lot more money doing it um i don't personally see the things happening that need to happen within the time frame that we because you know obviously we, sometimes i feel we forget there's supposed to be a time frame that we're supposed to get all this right stuff they were done. telling
2: us the world was going to end in 12 years and i feel like that was like 10 years ago
0: they don't be acting like it you know they don't be acting like it but um but then i i think that you know we're getting closer and closer into this late stage capitalism thing so we'll see how things work out I you know i see some things uh moving but if they keep on funding the police any type of <laughs> you know uh russia type of protest that we've seen over there that happened over here you know they're definitely revving up for that i think but um But that's exactly
2: what has to happen, you know. Like I said, last time we did an environmental episode, I'm not doing another gosh darn environmental episode unless there's someone like Andrea's mom here talking about his book, How to Blow Up a a Pipeline. Like I don't – short of (laughs) that, I'm not interested. I mean I'll have – I would love to talk to some – what you call it, sunrise people about what they're up to.
6: (laughs) You
0: don't even want to know. You know, you know, know. I, I would.
2: I would love to do those kinds of episodes. But generally speaking, like you know, producer Ben was like despondent after we recorded this past one. He's like, when the environmental stuff happens, like it's just too dark. It's too bleak. You, you saw Sirota almost had a breakdown in the middle of the episode. You know, <laughs> uh, Oscar nominated David Sirota. It's like it's like a weird you know, dystopian reality to have had so much professional success making a movie about the environmental crisis. And then we be staring down the barrel of the crisis, just ratcheting up as your nomination is pending.
7: (laughs)
0: That's pretty sick. Like you're literally living out your own movie. That's pretty wild.
2: Yep. Yeah. So I don't know, like that's on me. I need to. I don't let me. Is Andrea's mom on Twitter? Let me see if I can DM his ass right now because, like, I that is the kind of energy we need. We need, I'm sorry, we need Canadian trucker energy. Also, what even happened to the Canadian truckers? They were supposed to come for the inauguration or or the state of the unit, and I feel like I didn't even hear anything about it.
0: They just be all talk out here. I'm telling you, they they waiting for their boy four or five to you know, when four or five walk around, then they start, you know, you know, that friend, you know, that friend that starts acting different when girls come around, like. (laughs) Like that's what the, that's what the MAGA crew is. Like when Trump come around, oh, they be putting their whole test out, you know, but then right now they kind of like, well, I don't, you know, I don't really see, though. Know, they acting all shy and stuff, you know, so.
2: You had to mess to get outdone in the protest around by a bunch of Canadians. I don't know. I don't know. So I mean, no disrespect people, to my connects to the people, North.
0: <laughs> people just have to be ready to sacrifice and not to be the accelerator. Uh, acceler- I'm not Still gonna right? say the word mm-hmm. right. Thank you. Thank you for that. You see where I'm going, B. That's mm-hmm. why they pay you the big bucks. That's why you <laughs> 1.5, you know. Uh, uh, you was talking about it with a homeboy that got the thick accent from I hope he's not from Ukraine. Is he Ukrainian? Who? They were talking about the uh Krishna Slop. Um, you on know the, the dude, he was you had him on the page, you know, on y'all the was talking cast? about Yeah. Or on this talking, on this show. No a patreon you had him on a patreon and it was like about he was like oh i'm not trying to be an accelerant like i don't want to accelerate like i don't you don't remember someone in the crowd they're gonna tell you an but anyways accent. yeah dick accent his name was like igor Shlach, something i don't know but igor. Who no okay i about? With, he was european he was european is what i'm saying but let me say what he was saying oh like, slavoj that guy
2: yeah 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 sorry slavoj <laughs>
0: <laughs> I knew it was that vibe. You see where you knew where I was going. That was the no, vibe. I was it.
2: thinking it was a more recent episode. I was like, I don't remember nah. but Boy for sure. That's my dude with the accent a hundred percent.
0: And so he was talking about that accelerated thing and he's like, I'm mm-hmm. not really trying to go there, but then like ultimately like it's when people really get desperate is when they start, you know, doing the thing that need to be done. So we just not there yet. We can't and I talked to your girl Astra. They not they said they not they not there with the occupying and stuff like it's just not there so we we too comfortable right now i'm sorry we are gonna keep on working though i promise you but we're just too comfortable right
2: now yeah i need to call her i don't know if you were did i say this in the last one of these or did i say this on the show i can't remember everything's a blur now but that there's a part of me that wishes oh no i said this on um james Buffon's show on monday you should all go and like his videos and subscribe to his channel i did a lovely interview with him And you know how hard it is to break into independent media. So go support him if you can. If you listen to Bad Faith, you heard him on our male dating panel. He was the only one who wasn't acting like he ain't shit. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. But, you know, the straight men were not exactly holding it down for straight men. That's all I'll say about that episode. uh... Um, But he's great. And I was telling him that sometimes I think, You know, I I feel like we go around in circles a little bit in the podcast and we diagnose the problem. We're all on the same page and we figured everything out now. And it's like, all right, when are we going to do it? And sometimes I wish I could say, okay, patrons, you're not going to get videos anymore. (laughs) You're now just paying my salary to do all the things I've been talking about for the next last year and a half. And I'm going to like... Right, draft you up a timesheet of what I've been up to. (laughs) And this is how many hours I spent on the phone arguing with Astra about what this protest should be. And this is the amount of time I spent calling local news to cover the next Medicare for all March. And this is what I did. And that, and that, and that, and this, you're, you're, you're paying for me to set up an organization the likes of which could affect some of the things we discuss. In the same way that, you know, there's no progressive policy think tanks of Matt Brunick started one and people paying $5 a month. And, he puts out some of the most important policy that many of the squad members rely on and propose, uh, put forward in Congress. So I don't know, man, I I feel you.
0: You got it. You got to do it. Cause Astra, Fred and Braxton, they tired of me talking about it. So you go ahead and press (laughs) them. I'm gonna let everybody else go Go. Let the queue keep on going and I'll talk to you soon. 1.5. All
2: right. Thank you, Sylvester. Have a good
0: one. All right, BB.
2: (laughs) All right, Max, you're up. What's on your mind tonight?
13: Hi, uh, Ms. Bezos. Can you hear me?
2: <laughs> I can't hear you. All right. Now y'all, <laughs> you guys can't let this guy out of control now.
13: <laughs> like- Thanks Sylvester created a monster. Um, <laughs> I, I was, I was, I was going to ask you something about the Russia Ukraine situation. Uh, cause I was watching an interview with the dudes from the Vanguard, uh, mm-hmm. like a couple yesterday or two days ago with Glenn Greenwald
2: mm-hmm. and, um, it was good.
13: You know, on top of the more that I read and listen to about this, uh, this conflict, the more it seems like, well, yes, you know, a hostile, a hostile invasion of a country is never right. We kind of did poke Russia in all of the wrong directions, uh, push all their buttons. It seems like we it's almost like we were kind of asking for it in a way from, the, from, the, from what I've understood. And um, one thing that Glenn Greenwald brought up that I thought was really interesting that I hadn't thought about before was that he said that perhaps if this happened uh, during the Obama years or something, that maybe Putin wouldn't have invaded Ukraine or something, because rhetorically speaking, uh, the political class in America was not hostile towards um, towards Russia like i think that obama said something like you know don't worry about russia they're not our enemy they're kind of doing our own thing we're doing our own thing oh worse um, he said
2: that they were he said that they were kind of uh politically and economically insignificant with a gdp like the size of italy and apparently so I don't forget who told me this. Apparently, Putin was big mad about that, but also I, I mean, I agree with you and what Glenn was saying is that Obama never took the posture that we should engage and if there was anything that kind of carried over from his lofty campaign promises, it was well, you know what? Let me even not say that because that's overstating the case, but there was this little anti-interventionist thread that at least he stuck the landing when it came to Russia. Not when yeah, came to Russia. Yeah, yeah, I agree.
13: Like, y- yeah, like Obama was a little bit less imperialist than like uh hillary was or biden or or trump yeah he was notoriously
2: um, pushed by hillary into libya and he says that was like the greatest mistake of his presidency he seems to have had some regrets i don't know i don't want to overstate the case don't come for me i'm not defending obama okay yeah um and also hillary was the one that apparently pushed
13: the drone (laughs) war to such high levels during the obama administration pressured him that's what that's what i've heard but um Uh, What was I going to say? Oh, yeah. Glenn basically said that um, that uh, maybe it wouldn't have happened back then because we were clearly not interested in engaging Russia or presenting them as some kind of, you know, enemy that's a direct threat to American democracy. But the last like five to six years, that's all at least liberal media has been pushing about Russia, that they're a threat to democracy, that they're interfering in our elections, that they have nefarious motives and that they're... um, willing to like, what was that one story that Maddow did? Like they're going to cut off the electricity. And I don't remember what it was. Um, something crazy. And, mm-hmm. uh, and the democratic party has also taken a very, because of maybe because of the media or maybe the media did it because of the democratic party. But like, uh, like it, wasn't there a moment in one of the debates where Biden said something about Trump being like Putin's like little pet or something. And Putin's pet, all yeah. this, all, yeah, like all this, there's been all this dialogue and, um, about about Russia just being the number one enemy of America, and at the same time that we're kind of pushing this narrative, and maybe like a significant amount of the population actually b- buys into that idea like i I have professors that still believe that um, Trump was like planted in by uh, putin as a, as like a you know phony president, and it doesn't matter what you tell them they still they still believe that and um so, so do you think that maybe like The the thing that the thing that maybe set Putin off the edge on top of us, you know, expanding NATO eastwards twice, once in the 90s, once in the 2000s and, you know, including Soviet republics the second time we did it and not and and um, refusing because he made his grievances pretty clear that uh, he wanted the U.S. to promise to not uh, add Ukraine into NATO. And I think that we declared that as a non starter for negotiation. Right. Um, and then on top of that, we're also telling the public that Russia's like the number one enemy and everything, and that they're interfering in our elections and all this stuff, all these nefarious actions. Um, do you think that, that, that played a significant role? Basically, do you think that Russiagate played a significant role in making Putin kind of snap and go over the edge?
2: Well, I don't know about Gate as an isolated thing. Um you know i you know we had on this show a couple weeks or i guess that was last last week or last thursday um the fella goodness gracious uh who wrote that excellent article green uh bj green and i'm blocking what the b and the j are but i do remember that we have the same initials uh who wrote that article about what you really need to know about ukraine and kind of laying out the series of events from, you know, including NATO, NATO expansion, but also the Leach-Victoria-Newland tape and all the other, you know, America basically being revealed to be picking the, the next, the post-coup leader after instigating the coup. And, you know, there's a lot of things. And I was watching, actually, I would highly recommend um, a video uh, from 2015 by John Mearsheimer at the University of Chicago lays it all out with a level of clarity that was really mind-boggling. And in much the same way that I found Jen Briney's episode to be really prescient, his lecture was as well. And he talks about the geography of the region and the resources of the region, and it fills in a lot of holes for me in terms of people's motivations and what's happening here and the strategic value of Ukraine to Russia and the shale Resources that are there untapped because it doesn't have the resources, and that perhaps perhaps the NATO countries want a piece of, and to absorb into their financial system. And the fact that Ukraine is the breadbasket of Russia, and why Russia Ukraine has a greater strategic significance to Russia than it ever could to the United States, and that United States miss you know under and uh, underestimated the extent to which Russia is still living in a he as he puts it like a 20th century world. Where the balance of powers in that kind of cold world framework or fear, sphere of in, uh, sphere of influence is still very much front of mind, whereas America basically assumed it had won and that that they could act with impunity and move wherever it wanted, even though it would of course react negatively if that were you know that favor were returned and if China or Russia started building an air force bases in I don't know Cuba. So that's all to say that I wouldn't attribute it to any one thing. I don't think that. I, you know, I'm certainly not in a position to weigh in here, but it doesn't seem to me that just the um, RussiaGate hysteria was the be-all end-all for oh, be yeah. point I, for him. Um, yeah, yeah, I
13: didn't mean that it was the be-all end-all, but I was wondering if you think that that maybe raised the tensions even, um, even more than it would have been just with all of the. I, mean, I certainly uh, couldn't
2: have helped, but I, I'm I am resisting a little bit that the pervasive mainstream narrative is that you know. Putin's um, dignity has been assaulted and this is all ego-driven id. And for sure, I mean, you know, humans are humans and things like that happen. But when I listen to people like John Mearsheimer talk, the geopolitical reality of it seems so much clearer. And the fact that,
7: Mm -hmm.
2: and the the geopolitical rock in a hard place that he was in, regardless of what anybody said on TV at any point, um, and the Minsk Accords being left kind of in this, Limbo, uh, and you know, I don't know. Like he, all the warnings that people like John Meersheimer, you know, set out that he's given. Like, don't go. This is the red line for me. This is the red line for me. This is the red line for me. And this is a talk from 2015. So obviously, he's not talking about the intervening events up until now. But it just seems like when you when you see it all laid out like that, it's like, well, of course, like every red flag was there along the way. And America just kind of assumed that he wouldn't respond.
13: So, so basically like America kind of believed that because we're the, you know, we perceive ourselves as the sole superpower of the globe that Eastern imperialism is over uh, and that we can kind of just do whatever we want and no one will challenge us in any kind of ways. That's, that's what John Mearsheimer was kind of saying.
2: Yeah, and, and BJ BJG was saying on uh he was on status quo today and that was also very good and people should go listen to that and like that video and help support status quo but he was also saying that like in the 90s it was true that we lived in like a unipolar world where because of how recently the soviet union had fallen um because america basically went in and said we're doing capitalism now and split up all this money between the oligarchs and basically set up the set up the oligarchic system that exists today um because china wasn't then what it is now we really did live in a world where america could act in, in, with impunity and you saw that in the way that america behaved internationally in the 1990s. And there was never any pushback at Gulf War, and did whatever it wanted to do. But that reality has changed in America for whatever reason. The national security state has not internalized that we cannot behave that way anymore, particularly given the fact that we're dealing with another nuclear power. And it seems to be a little bit caught off guard almost, but almost not even realizing, I mean, just like, truly acting out of like ignorance and hubris of at a level that is really disturbing when you think of the fact that these are supposed to be the professionals in the room.
13: Yeah. Yeah. I totally agree. Well, thank you for your, um, your analysis, Brianna.
2: Yeah. Uh (laughs) LOL. And you guys should like, don't take my word for it. My recall, you know, I'm learning and my recall with these facts are not great, but, I strongly recommend Why Is Ukraine the West's Fault featuring John Mearsheimer uh, on YouTube and also going to watch that video with um, BJG on Status Coup today. Uh, Thanks, Max. Yeah, thank you. Paul, you're up next. What's on your mind this evening?
6: Brianna, can you hear me? I can. Nice. Um, I just wanted to hype you up. I... (laughs) Have found your. Are you familiar with them, um, the Italian socialist Antonio Gramsci?
2: I'm familiar with them. I can't say that I've read them. You know about me and books,
6: right? Yeah, no <laughs> worries. <laughs> yeah, I'm finding myself in the the book season here. Actually, at your uh, your own alma mater. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, are you an undergraduate
2: anyway, or a grad student?
6: I'm a grad student.
2: Cool beans. Cool beans.
6: Yeah, it's a, it's a good time. Um, Oh, yes. So Gramsci, he has this whole thing about the, um like the different types of intellectuals that we have. And basically, they're sort of divided into the two categories of, um, oh, what is it? The uh, organic intellectual and the, is it the professional? I can't remember. But basically, what I feel like you're, what's happening here on Colin is you're sort of creating this environment for the organic intellectuals to come together and and sort things out in a way that is the professional man. This other category, the name of it would make a uh, organic category make more sense. But um, yeah, I just wanted. I can't to you can't
2: get a good education at Harvard these days. My goodness. It's,
6: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, I uh, I had the reading all day and uh, got a little stone in the evening, and the <laughs> the the terms are not coming as readily. Anyways. I just feel like what what's the uh, the environment you're creating uh, here on Colin with all the all these folks? You got Time for Revolution, you got the Andy, all these delightful characters, and um, yeah, that's about it.
2: I tried to Google it for you real quick, but it's requiring too much brain power for me to multitask.
6: Oh, I'm so appreciative. <laughs>
2: uh, the most distinctive aspect of Gramsci's concept of ideology is, of course, the notion of organic ideology. Clearly. Uh, I really thought I could like I could I could search and find this the way I can on YouTube. But this huge block of text is staring at me, and I and I can't save you. I'm afraid, but I I get where you're coming from, and I have often said that my ignorance is a gift. <laughs> <laughs> I have often thought on these shows, and I felt this way a little bit as a journalist and as a, a lawyer. Even when you're a lawyer, they tell you your job is to become an expert on something that only eleven people in the world know. I remember being told this as a paralegal and being handed a book on like uh collateralized debt obligations and this is like a month before the crash and being told like we're investigating these companies you got to learn what these things are mm-hmm. and we did and it's not like rocket science but it is things that most people aren't putting their brain on and you have to figure it out and so you feel really empowered to do so and i think that was a really helpful lesson in life that you know did not be intimidated by things but i also think that coming at it from an outsider's perspective. You see what doesn't make sense because you're not indoctrinated to it. You're not being taught it as a matter of course. And as a journalist, I think that's a very important tool because oftentimes when I was editing, people would write in a way that assumed so much knowledge, and I can't stand when I'm reading something on the internet and that's they assume sure. that I fully understand the last fifty years of history in the region and da da da. da. And it's like mm. I understand that you can't make every article an encyclopedia entry. But if you make a claim that I'm not going to understand absent knowledge of a historical event, you got to make, you got to put those extra sentences in there. You just got to clarify it. And, you you know, that's all to say, I appreciate you. Thank you for that. And I, and I am finding these spaces incredibly valuable. I've got a pen and paper next to me whenever I'm here to write down all the follow-ups because you guys feed me so much. And (laughs) I will be coming back to this tab uh, about the concepts of ideology hegemony and organic
6: intellectuals in gromsky's Marx, marxism nice oh, and, I, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> and i found it it's the traditional intellectual the traditional and the organic traditional is you know anybody who would come up through the university system and sort of represent the ish, interests as they are whereas the organic intellectual is emerging from the economic class towards which it's representing and like articulating its, its position in the world.
2: Yeah. See, I knew um, being, you know, a lazy de minimis sort of student in college would pay off. I <laughs> didn't get brain worms.
6: <laughs> nice. Oh yeah. It's uh, it hits you hard. It hits you hard.
2: <laughs> well, thank you for that, Paul. I appreciate you coming, calling in and good luck in school. All right. Jam or Jom, what's on your mind? You got to unmute yourself. There you go.
7: Ginger.
2: I can. What's on your mind tonight?
1: First, I want to say thanks uh, for allowing the call. I'm Happy to be here. Um,
2: it's, it's a pleasure to be talking to you.
1: <laughs> uh, it's, I'm first off, uh, pretty much just got like two things. Um, the first thing is I'm I'm surprised that so many people were surprised about you know Joe Biden saying that wants to fund the police more mm. because I mean pretty much is like is a what he was running on during, like, the primary and everything. Mm-hmm. I, I, I didn't really get why everybody, you know, now is, like, reacting so so widely to it. Like, you know, he kind of pretty much gave up what he, what he said he was going to do,
7: mm-hmm. gonna do it,
1: like, in the first place. And then um, the second thing is a lot of the issues um, we're having with, like, progressive, like, caucus, I, I don't I, – I can't see – I don't understand why we're still doing, like, the same thing and like, being upset that we're getting the same results with a lot of the, the progressives, like, kind of how we constantly support them. As, and how, and I get why people are like, frustrated about electoralism and how they want to back away from it. But I think instead of us, like, backing away from electoralism, we should just focus more on local um, local elections. Mm-hmm. Like, we we'll, we'll look at everything that has been, like, successful in the left movement. We we'll look at, um, uh, what's her name out of Seattle? Like, she she, Swan. Um, mm-hmm. Like, she's part like, she's not, she's not, like, a, a federal representative. She's more so the local, the mm-hmm. local side. And it's something more so that um, I feel like we need to. Within, within the left movement, like, we have, and especially for, like, third parties, we should be pushing, I feel like, pushing the Green Party more to run, like, elections they can win, which would be local elections would have a bigger, um, bigger impact on, on the country at all. Like, a lot of our wins, like, we'd like to, we like to bring up and talk about saying how... Uh, Florida went for Trump. I mean, Florida, yeah, Florida went for Trump. But got the fifteen dollars minimum wage. But we don't talk mm-hmm. about how fifteen dollars minimum wage came about, because of uh, you know the local movement there get getting on the
2: mm-hmm. getting
1: as a ballot and shit. Yeah,
2: mm-hmm. for sure. In the wake of the news that emerged over the past few days pertaining to Nick Brana and the accusations in MPP. A lot of folks have been raising as one of the criticisms of MPP that there wasn't an appetite, apparently, in the organization for getting involved in local politics, even though they face so many barriers as a new party and getting ballot access for federal elections.
9: Mm-hmm. And
2: I think that's a completely fair criticism. Now, Brada's response, I thought, was interesting, which is that people want a solution on the scale of the problems and for that reason there is not as much of an appetite or interest in local elections and that does resonate with me i think that that is true but absent the ability to participate in federal elections especially i feel like you have to grant gain credibility as a party by doing that local stuff as well
1: yeah oh, i think shama is
2: yeah. an excellent example of that i i i want to put to you though you know how do you think that we should overcome this um political appetite issue where it is difficult for people to want to invest locally because it's not you know a famous person it's not a news story it's not someone they're going to see on their tv necessarily and also the other part of it seems to me to be that we were talking about the lack of kind of professional resources that you get for being an organizer and how people are mostly Mm -hmm. just organizing for free and struggling often and these federal jobs these federal positions you know, they give you a living wage, you know, they give you a good yeah. six-figure salary, whereas these local yeah. positions will still have you, you know, doing it, this stuff on the side. It's your second job.
1: Yeah. yeah you know, how do you start to convince
2: yeah. people to do to do this, to take all that on?
1: Well, like, well, first off, I want to, you know, like, bring up, thank you for bringing up the point that, you know, like, when you, like, people that's like, um, I can't remember the lady that was uh homeless that went, that, that ended up becoming, um, I think when she was out of Missouri or something. Ended up becoming a representative. Her name, Corey is- Cory Bush. You know, mm-hmm. Corey Bush. Mm-hmm. you know that if you're like if you before, previously you know like in your life you were homeless, now you're making like a hundred grand a year. Like it's is going to have like an effect on you. Like this, your podcast is like the only one that ever brought up you know like that that point. You know, but how we fl- flip people, how how I would tackle um, tackle the issue is still more so like you were saying, um, people that are that's still more so focusing on uh, federal you know, uh, representatives and how i would i'm trying trying to think that's i will p- focus more so on union people like i'm in a union and i'm a um uaw member
7: mm. down
1: in uh, louisville mm. i work at the uh, Kentucky truck plant and pushing like union memberships the people that's uh, especially people that are committee people where they can hold their um they can hold their primary, the uh, primary, primary job and still do more so of the local, the, um, the local work, it's especially because of most of the local, most of the um, like local representatives, like in our state houses don't work anywhere near, you know, like a full, a full-time job. So if you have somebody who already have a, you have to push towards people that has more so of a, um, a job of somewhat comfort and mm-hmm. that's in, within the community. That can you know that that's that's already still invested in, into the community that can actually you know uh push for things like and that
2: is I think what happened with shama um you know yeah. I think that she definitely uh, she has an academic background, I forget what it is, but she was you know a a member of the bourgeois i, I don't that's mm-hmm. obviously not an insult I'm say that as someone who also is, and I believe mm-hmm. her partner i don't want to lie I, I don't want to misrepresent the situation, but I think her partner if he's not in tech he's in you know a middle class you' got like a stable well-paying job I think and so I that it, it I think you do end up with a lot of members of the uh, p- petty bourgeois in these positions because who the hell else is gonna do them and by the way it's still a risk for people in the petty bourgeois you know sure. shama has given up her most of her salary she only keeps like you know thirty or forty thousand dollars of it and gives mm-hmm. the rest to a socialist alternative you know anybody can be bankrupted by something like cancer so it, it it's not it's not that it's not a a risk even for people who are just, you know, middle-class, but that's who ends up mm-hmm. filling in because the risk is just too high for people who are poor.
1: Yeah, but like I definitely, uh, I definitely get it. But it's just, at the same time, it's like, it's just, it just gets frustrating not to see any, not to see any push for, I mean, seeing all the push be like on the, on a federal level, when, when you look at what, what the left has actually, has actually done and has actually worked has all been, has all been on the um on the local side that's like in effect right now like legalizing marijuana is is like l- marijuana isn't legal you know federally and everything, but it's multiple states like including right here in, in um, michigan i'm in, visiting a family up here in Detroit mm. at the moment, like you know like I can go to, down to a dispensary and get it you know because that's because of you know like local pushing to make it you know to make it um to make it legal in the state and that's a a progressive a progressive you know value, but we don't see people we don't see know a lot of like commentators or we don't see a lot of the representatives themselves trying to make coalitions you know with people in local state houses or Mm -hmm. trying or paying attention at all to a local to any like local elections to try to flip state houses you know to try to uh, to try to get people with our with our values in those state houses or just uh, linking up other with other um local with other local um policy um other local policy people to push you know to get their agenda enacted, you know, more so immediately.
2: Well, let me, let me ask you this question: Would you ever consider mm-hmm. running for local office yourself?
1: Uh, I have, especially now, and it's something that's getting me uh, upset about. Like the, the news cycle is that, like, so I'm, I'm I'm from I'm from Southwest Detroit, visiting up here right now, like from Rashid Tlaib's, uh district, mm-hmm. but um, I live in Louisville, Kentucky, in um, John Yarmouth's district, and he mm-hmm. said that he's not, you know, that he's not running. For uh, again like he's, he's done after this term but we haven't he's like a big you know he's a big member of the, of the press but we don't haven't heard anybody talking about you know we haven't heard Bernie have heard you know um AOC or anybody saying okay trying to make a push to get another progressive in this NDC mm. you know and like, that's, that's a,
2: fascinating so he he's we haven't heard there's nobody in the ra- he's he's ending his term this year so mm-hmm. th- there, is there not a race going on right now?
1: Yeah, it's gonna it's gonna be raised, but there's nobody like I'm saying. There's no progressive challenger. Oh, I see. Yeah, that's that, well, that's that that's the issue. Yeah,
2: that is interesting. Kentucky's yeah, like I've seen him like, announce it multiple times, but,
1: but you know he's done.
2: Who's, and, like, who's he's, in the mix here? Been,
1: yeah, he's been he been fairly you know progressive, you, you know like he's been. Like, I think he signed on to you no know, Medicare, to Medicare for all, and everything. But we haven't had anybody uh, out of the progressive movement really trying to make a push you know like the flip flip here is the same thing like for uh for the senate it was some people like in um like we've seen um was who was his name chuck schumer push mm-hmm. for um not uh, charles brooker um uh, i believe her name is amy amy something can't remember she uh but she was a regular corporate you know democrat had a terrible message her whole message was just you know i'm a mom and i'm a vet and uh mitch mcconnell's been here to uh been there too long but we oh, didn't
2: Amy
1: see, McGrath. Amy McGrath. Yeah. <laughs> but we didn't we didn't see. I didn't see like Bernie trying to come down and like help push Charles Booker. Mm-hmm. You know, like to help or like AOC or anybody else. Or like you know, like the main the, the big names of the, the progressive caucus or the progressive movement to push you know Charles Charles Booker or a couple of other you know more so progressive um progressive people running than you know. no. So like yeah, the only, I think that's a. a like the only time. Mm-hmm, go ahead. Go ahead.
2: That seems like a really good point. I'm seeing that somebody named Morgan McGarvey, McGarvey and Mm. Attica Scott are running on the Democratic Party ticket. I know nothing about either of these people. Attica Scott is a black woman, which, you know, makes me feel like they're not even yelling about that. They love to yell about that. We'll see if it's progressive or not. But it's interesting that I haven't even heard about her for identity politics reasons.
1: I mean, it's it's crazy to me that this has been talked about in the news like that. And like I said he's a big, like he's not like he's he's a, a big D Democrat, you know. And it's an empty yeah. an empty seat. there there's been no, no are, talk yeah. about
2: it. These holes are so funny. When I was working at the Intercept in 2018 for that midterm cycle, uh, I remember like casually observing that there were two Senate races in Mississippi. Like there were two mm-hmm. Senate seats o- o- up for grabs in Mississippi. And I, like, mentioned it to Ryan Grimm, and I was like, hey, this seems Mm. to be, like, a thing, but no one seems to be interested that in the blackest state in the United States of America, where you only need 15% of the white vote to win. Oh, my God. Like, this could be two Democratic pickup seats. One of them was a jungle primary, which advantaged the progressive candidate because there were two conservatives Mm. in the race. And I mean not progressive. they weren't progressive, but the Democratic candidate. And the the other guy was a kind of weirdly progressive white guy who had like a, a black adoptive kid and who said a couple of the right things about Medicare for All and stuff. And I was like, mm-hmm. this is like and the and the other guy was black. And I was like, this is this is like this should be media bait. Battle yes. in Mississippi, two Democratic <laughs> yes. seats. Like mm-hmm. it's the blackest state in the. All the things that are so mythological and interesting about Mississippi is the seat of slavery. This is like neoliberal bait. Like why is nobody writing about this? And I wrote two papers on it, and I uh, two articles. And I remember calling me um, like the DNC rep or DCCC rep asking them about like how much they funded these races, how much they've invested Mm -hmm. in these races. Cause the other thing is that media is really cheap in Mississippi compared to other places. You can run like 10 ads in Mississippi for like one radio ad in LA. (laughs) You know, I'm making those numbers up, but you know what I mean? And -hmm. they basically, it was very clear. They were very, hesitant to say anything to me they didn't really want to talk to me at all they gave me really pro forma statements and i think it's you know they the the, the democratic party had made a decision not to invest in these races for whatever reason mm-hmm. and that's crazy to me
1: it's very much like and, and uh, it says more so it, it just angers me more so especially i get more mad at the progressive you not know, the progressives because like we're, they're supposed to be the ones you know that like uphold our ideals and and i it gets it is frustrating to me too like listening to a bunch of different podcasts and other like left-leaning people when hearing their frustration about why having like things change or like being like big big uh, example being upset like joe biden for saying like defund like he doesn't want to defund the police right and being saying like we need to end a lot of like this um police brutality and stuff but then won't highlight stories like how we had here in um well i mean michigan but in, in uh, louisville well after brianna um taylor the black lives matter like local movement i'm not gonna talk about the bigger mm-hmm. organization and a bunch of other like black groups like my um black gun group participated in and even helped like write a bill to help to uh end no uh, not raids like that was that's a you know legitimate legitimate win put mm-hmm. like, push you know from local you no know, local movements that end up you know um that was an open like negotiation with with the mayor uh, with the mayor there and like the um the black uh, the black movements there we went back and forth on it for like to, to help actually you know push you no know, push the change that we actually wanted to see and you know end up doing it but you know't that's not getting you know like big you know news and stuff and and, then, yeah. and it helps people like get get out of feel like they don't need to vote at all or want to yeah you know, i mean I that's that's like part of,
2: of the consequences also of just have not having local news at all anymore and, and yeah. people aren't covering their own community i mean there's no resources to cover one's own community that's where the more and more i think about it the more i come back to you know when i was just joking about oh i'm not going to do podcasts anymore we're going to create an organization with the money like it's like well that's exactly the kind of thing you know sometimes they think Mm -hmm. time would be better spent you just picked a town picked a city you know or or said i'm going to take your patreon donations and this is what we're going to do we're going to fund local journalism we're going to get some results and we're going to parlay that into more and more and more i mean i look at what david sirota is able to accomplish at the daily poster you know Mm -hmm. he hung out a shingle as they say and hired a bunch of journalists (laughs) and patreon and and that's what he's doing but it's kind of absurd that he has to do that, and it seems impossible. I mean, you can imagine a world where on a community m- model, I say, okay, I live in whatever ward I live in, and if we all kicked in one dollar a month, fifty cents a month, that's a ton of money for my community here in D.C. That could yeah. fund how many journalists doing what kind of work covering what's happening down the street from me that would be very, very mm-hmm. interested in, or frankly, yeah. you know, have some kind of gov- you know structural support. And the and the and the you know people are gonna have mixed feelings about state funded media, but you know something. Yeah, I'm needs all to for I'm all
1: for that. You're like, I'm for like state. I'm like same thing. I, have a lot, I get a lot of pushback when I tell people about like, look, I'm all for like a state state run like newspaper or anything like that. You know, I'm 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 definitely definitely for it to so I can, so can kind of, like skirt the profit motive. You know that that we get getting. Yeah, know.
2: yeah. I mean, it's it's kind of the sad. um uh, gofundmeism of everything but also I, I you can't tell me that it's necessarily worse than that than the uh, advertising model and I will say this I know people have mixed feelings you know there's there's criticisms that I have of Batya Angar Sargan's work but the first six or seven chapters of her book that just lay out the history of what happened to the newspaper industry are very compelling mm-hmm. and the the when we had penny papers that were funded by poor people give, you know we had we had a kind of unprecedentedly literate, Nation and someone figured out that oh these if you make the make get you you appeal to these poor people there are enough poor people who are actually literate and you make bring the cost down of the paper enough that you can actually fund it by writing about the issues that poor people want to hear about. Okay, and then someone came up with, oh, no, actually, we're going to do this advertising model where we actually don't want the poor people to read the paper because it brings down the quality of the clientele. We want to only advertise, you know, fancy watches and jewelry and stuff so that rich people know that other rich people are reading the paper and they can, you know, know, have that kind of exclusivity. And that changed the quality of the news that was printed as well. And there's something to be said, said for crowdfunding in this in this in this context, at least. Yeah. Anyway, I'm going on and on. Thank you, Jan, for call- for <laughs> calling in.
1: No problem. Thank you.
2: All right. Shelly, you're up next. Unmute yourself and let me know what's on your mind. Shelly, you got to have to press the microphone button in the bottom right-hand corner. All right, Shelly, go in once, go in twice. If you figure it out, go to the end of the queue, and I will bring you up later. All right, Hussein, what's on your mind? Hey, Brianna. How you doing? What's What are you thinking about this evening?
11: I'm doing okay. So I had questions about progressivism, politics in general. Okay. So cool. am I to understand you are like anti-war just in general? Why am I like hearing? I listened to Jake and Anna for the past week on this whole Ukraine topic. It almost feels like to me i don't know if it's just me they have pom-poms on for like more war mm. but from like pushing it from the european side they're not like well let's go to war but they're like russia is losing mm. we need to they need to send more nato needs to send more troops or or weapons to uh, to ukraine to help mm-hmm. and then in the same breath they'd go like well ukraine is actually taking it to russia they're totally losing the war Now, in my progressive politics, I would say, I'm confused because I'm like, are we pro-war? Because if Ukraine is giving it to Russia, we should be happy that they're losing. But we shouldn't, like, push more war for NATO to send even more weapons. And then I don't, I listen, I mean, I read all the newspapers. So I see, I don't, I might not listen to MSNBC, not that much, not that much because Rachel is not on as much that's who's was my favorite Rachel Maddow but I'm confused as to like where progressives are on war at this point it almost feels like if they're not on the war drums they're definitely dancing to the beat a little bit
2: that is such an interesting question as you were speaking on my Twitter feed um, came a tweet talking about the drama between Aaron mate and yes. chang and anna and all of Jake. that and so that's just to say that the idea that there's like a progressive t- i mean there's obviously some factions that have emerged within the broader left on this issue right, right. um and it's the same factions that it kind of existed around force the vote <laughs> it's just like a <laughs> permanent I'm not saying it's related to that i'm just saying it's the same people who end up on either side of these equations And look, there is a um, good faith. I'm getting a little bit of an echo, so I'm just going to put you on mute while I'm talking, but you're still here. I'll bring you back. There's a uh, a good faith way to say, obviously I stand in solidarity with civilians who are being impacted by this war. I stand in solidarity with, you know, you know, The people of Ukraine who didn't ask for this, I stand in solidarity with the people of Russia who are being impacted by these sanctions who had nothing to do with this and didn't want this. And that is, I think, the the stance that organizations like uh, Socialist Alternative have made with their statement. But there is something a little bit more jingoistic about the cheerleading that has come from some quarters. And I haven't been watching Chang and Anna, so I can't speak directly to that. But I've definitely seen in other places a kind of, um, you know, we can't just let them, we can't just leave them to the wolves. We've got to send them gunpowder And, you know, there's this volunteer army. They, they said they're taking volunteers from around the world. And people are like, I'm going to put on a blue and yellow shirt and go fight in Ukraine. And, you know, I, it's a free country. <laughs> you know, whatever moves you. But there is, um, Katie tweeted someone on her show the other day, Katie Halper where she was like, every war ends in a diplomatic solution. No matter how long it lasts, when it ends, it's a diplomatic ending. And so the goal of the left should be to hasten that diplomatic resolution, not do things that extend the time that armed conflict is taking place. And I thought that was a kind of clarifying way to put it. Now, some people would say, My priority is making sure that the country that I'm rooting for is in a better diplomatic, is in a better position when the diplomatic talks start so they can extract more. But, you know, that is, I think, skirting over the reality of the human cost of that outcome. And also it presumes a kind of cleanness about who we're rooting for and why that I'm not sure most commentators most viewers are really internalizing because the coverage has been so incomplete. And there are a lot of bad people on both <laughs> in terms of not the people of these countries, but the, the, the puppeteers, the politicians behind the strings. There are a lot of bad people all across the board with perverse incentives. Um, and it's not clear to me, and this is what I was saying to Matt Dust, it's not clear to me that we, any of us should be in a position where we are rooting for the political institutions that are behind these conflicts. And maybe that's a coward's way out, but I don't know what other position the left can take right now. I certainly am very uncomfortable with the idea of sending arms into a conflict like this. I don't know. What are you thinking, Hussein?
11: Uh, I agree. It seems like, um, I, there just needs to be a little bit more voice, a, a bit more diverse voice on the progressive. I guess you call it independent media—is what they call it. Mm-hmm. Um, you seem like the token black girl, which is totally fine. I understand. <laughs> I'm like a token black person in in Kentucky, which is the thing. Um, but even in their in their circles,
2: Kentucky it, today.
11: Yeah, that's so weird, right? <laughs> in their circles, it seems like a revolving door of just them i guess that sort of in the same circles kyle kalinsky uh crystal ball jank uger all of them and then there there's this drama and then the news part of it is almost like not there anymore and if it is there it's like so opinion based it's almost ridiculous to call it news at this point like should i just go back to watching rachel maddow because i understand you all were progressive we just I can be progressive uh, economically, I'm a little socially conservative because I'm from Kentucky and all, but when I go listen to these things, I don't care about your all's, like, opinions about each other or your back and forth bickering, Anna wearing a short skirt in the office, Jimmy Dore not liking the outfit, like, (laughs) all that stuff is, like, drama that could stay between you all, can we, like, get to the news? And then report it as accurately as possible.
2: I would say there are people who are doing that. Um, I agree with you that a lot of this drama happens on the left. And to be honest, it drives clicks. So there's a lot of perverse incentives for people to keep covering their latest dispute with whomever. Uh, I, I try to avoid that. And to the extent that I participate in it, it's because I'm bringing two people who are arguing together to actually hash it out. But... You know, we're all guilty on some level. I would recommend go, if you want primary source, just reporting and journalism, you can go to places like Status Coup. Um, we had on this show this time last week the BJG, whose name I couldn't remember. His name is Bryce Green. He wrote this excellent piece at FAIR that was also published in the Black Agenda Report that laid out the historical trajectory of this conflict and how we got here. Earlier, I recommended a video by John Mearsheimer on YouTube, a lecturer at University of Chicago. Strongly recommend that to better understand the roots of this conflict. I, I'm not disagreeing with you that you have to dig a little bit of some, a little bit sometimes outside of like the left media personality world. Yeah, but it's definitely there. You know, people like Chris Hedges and um, Richard Wolf put out content on a regular basis on their channels that's more straight news and explainer of concepts uh people like uh claudia Som an economist who we had on the show has a sub stack where she writes about these things david zirota is covering things david dan is covering things at the daily prospect i mean that's that's where i'm getting my news you know there's there is people feel mixed ways about it but there is the intercept there is you know jacobin there is current affairs is, is is back i got a hard copy magazine in the mail a couple days ago so i guess nathan's over there turning them out you know so i there are places to go it's not all it's not all uh you know personal feuds
11: oh okay i'll probably look into those but we definitely us kenyans and um kentucky would also like to revoke your personal shimmy card i i think that could take some work we laugh oh my god hilarious hilarious my, my like, oh my yeah, like we saw a video of you attempting to shimmy it was the funniest thing ever I don't even I don't know what a shimmy is so
2: I don't know why how, how I would be attempting the shoulder to shimmy thing,
11: like the whole shoulder shimmy thing I'm like who does that she's vertically sitting down and she's really attempting to shimmy and she's black and then she's from Nairobi like I am and this is just making us look awful as well, black people okay
2: there's a couple of things <laughs> I'm not from Nairobi I lived there or for six was years was there Uh, Two, I don't know what you're talking about because I literally don't know what a shimmy is in terms of a dance specifically you seem to be alluding to. And I would put to you that the concept of shimmying is like waving or stomping or doing any kind of gesture with one's body that is not in fact synonymous with a particularized dance for a region. So don't feel like you need to defend your Kentucky cred. (laughs) I have been to Kentucky once for a friend's wedding. I don't know what a shimmy is and I promise you have never attempted to do it.
11: (laughs) A shoulder shimmy when you're at the top and you're just moving your shoulders back and forth.
2: Yeah, that's, you guys. I'm sorry. You don't own. You don't own the concept of shimmying, and you're not the only person who can move their shoulders back and forth in the world. <laughs> but we're from the south, and we do it the best. That's that's just my point here.
11: Like, we're I, I,
2: okay. No one's challenging that, but no one here knows what a shimmy is. So I think you're what, in Washington
11: bit... DC, they don't shimmy.
2: I don't know. I'm not from here and I can't speak to what Washington D.C. people do or do not know. I'm certainly not going to throw them under the bus in any of this. I don't speak (laughs) for them. I don't speak for people from Nairobi. I don't speak for people from uh, St. Louis, sorry, Kentucky. And I certainly don't speak for all black people. And I certainly have never attempted any choreographed dance move in public. That is not my lane.
11: I'll definitely send you the video <laughs> and I'll find it. It's hilarious.
2: <laughs> all right, Hussain, right, thank you for calling it.
11: No problem, <laughs> you're a, good. Have oh, a good man, night. You Take care. You too. Yeah.
2: <laughs> all right, Ethan, unmute yourself and let me know what's on your mind tonight.
14: Hello, can you hear me? I can. Hey, Brianna, uh, love, the, love the podcast. And, thank uh, you. Yeah, so... um, i don't really have like a question, I just wanted to say I love it and like i I became a listener uh back when you went on andrew Sullivan's podcast oh interesting yeah and and then the on in your second conversation, you joked about like your listeners there's no overlap between your listeners and his, yeah, and you know i'm i'm telling you i'm i'm the i'm the overlap
2: so. oh i'm fascinated okay so what was it what is it about? Um, Andrew Sullivan show that you that draws you to it and then what is it about bad faith that has made you a a bad faith listener
14: so I would say um you both um you're both great debaters I'd say I'd say in in the the debate that you had with them you you came off stronger uh but um yeah
2: not that we're counting points here
14: yeah (laughs) um but yeah I mean like My guess is there's probably a larger overlap there because uh, like, I I do feel like you both debate in good faith Mm. and like you do, you do try to like come to a better understanding, uh, like Mm. in a sincere way, which like, which I don't get a lot out of, like, which I can't find a lot of.
12: Yeah. I think
2: you learn, you learn so much that way. You know, some of my audience was upset at me doing the interview, but I was very glad. I enjoyed it so much. And especially because you're able to do it in person. Cause I also think that doing it, doing interviews in person, COVID permitting, it, it makes you see people as human and you can see their body language and, you know, you don't interrupt each other as much because you can, you can tell when someone's breathing in about to say something and You know, it's just, it's so much more organic and you're more likely to treat each other like human beings and flesh and blood. And the same with the Thomas Chatterson Williams interview, which I did the same day. I just enjoy it so much more. And people are like, well, how come you have all these people on the show who are, you don't agree with. And why don't you talk to more people to your left? And it's like, for one, I mean, I'd love to send me the suggestion of the person to my left that I should talk to, but the people to my right, I Like, there's only so many times I can sit around a table with, you know, someone I like, like Astrid Taylor, and be like, yes, we both agree that student debt should be canceled. Mm -hmm. You know, I I learn more. I sharpen my rhetorical skills. I sharpen my ability to communicate to others who don't already agree with me by talking to people who don't agree with me, who are also excellent debaters, who are also willing to engage in good faith, who are knowledgeable and intelligent. And it's it's also fun for
14: me. It's engaging for me. It's a challenge. Right. Right. I, I can totally tell. Like... Like, like one observation I noticed is like, like, f- for example, like in the last call in, someone was trying to say that Michael Jackson was a greater, b- better vocalist, <laughs> right? And then, and then you you always, when you start at debate, you, there's always a line you say, you, you always say, well, let's talk about, let's talk this out. And then, and then, you know, what, what follows is you dunk on them. <laughs> right? Well-
2: well, I, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily frame it that way, Ethan, but yeah, I, I look, I, maybe it's cause I'm so neurotic. I spend all day sitting around like, you, you know, those like puzzles where you put like a coin or something on the top and it comes down through a maze and then it filters down into one of various pockets. Like, I feel like that's my brain and I'm just like putting things in and shaking them out all day. And it's not, it's not that I think I, I know everything or have the answers to everything, but if a topic comes up and I'm willing to debate you on it, I've probably already put it through my filter and I'm ready to go. <laughs> like, I'm ready. To, I'm ready to, to suss it out. And I think it's I mean, I I love thinking about why it is that we disagree. The, the fact of our disagreement is an opportunity for us to interrogate what, how we see the world differently. Do you know what I mean? And that's it's what total. I was try- trying to say to, to, to um, Leslie about like I, I am a contra- – maybe contrarian is not the right word for it, but I do have an appetite for that kind of conflict, not for the conflict itself, but for what it may or may not illuminate about who you are as a person that I find to be interesting. Like going on a date – like not to make every episode a dating episode – but I, had to, I recently changed my dating profile to be like, can we please not talk about travel? And I know I shouldn't have that. You shouldn't say negative things in your profile. It's very off-putting, but I was in a mood. I'll change it back. The point is that I don't want to talk about travel because I learned nothing about you. Oh, you went to Spain and ate paella. Fabulous. So did everybody else You went to Spain. <laughs> like, oh, you really enjoyed going to Thailand and you put your feet in those little tanks and the fish ate the dead flesh off. I know nothing about who you are as a person. All you're telling me is that you have disposable income. Y- you know what I mean? <laughs> right. I, I just find those conversations to be so boring. I cannot stand it. Now, if we have a... People don't like talking about astrology, but I like that as an, a window into talking about who you are. Maybe you, you don't conform to your sign at all, but if I say, oh, you're a Taurus, you, do you love food? You know, are you, are you organized? Do you're, have your relationships failed because you're inflexible and taciturn? <laughs> like the answer is yes or no but now we're having a conversation substantively about who you are
14: right and so to add to that so i you know i i've been listening to you for about six months and i have i you definitely like moved me to the left um and i wow. but i, I guess <laughs> right you um,
7: love to hear but, it
14: yeah i mean well like like the things like on the left, like that we push for, like, uh, like loan student debt forgiveness and, you know, $15 minimum wage Mm -hmm. and like Medicare for all, like, like I'm totally on board with that. Like, and, but I, my concern about the left is sort of like not engaging in debates or, or sort of like, like not in, I guess sort of dismissing people who who don't agree with you completely. It like it it concerns me about the Tell left. me more. Tell say more about it. Well, well like I guess like like cancel culture, the term cancel culture. Mm-hmm. On the left, it it instead of like engaging they the left wants to like cancel you, you know. If, if you, you don't disagree. feel that the
2: same so I, I'm not a person who will say there's no cancel culture. I, be, I fully believe that there is um, certain things are defined as cancel culture that aren't and vice versa, but I, I believe that there is, I don't necessarily believe it is endemic to the left more so than the right. Oh, look,
14: totally. I totally agree with that. But, but like, even when you, you speak like, you, like, for example, when, when you're talking about Ukraine, mm-hmm. you have to qualify it by saying you're novice on the subject, Well, I mean, that's just true, but
2: also I'm not, I'm not a Putin's puppet. I was on a, I went on a, a, there was a Twitter spaces the other night that I popped into and they saw me and they pulled me up as a speaker and this other speaker just went in on me telling me that I was Putin's puppet, that I uh, was the response. I was, I was the cause of women not having reproductive rights anymore because I voted for Jill Stein in 2016 and just would not like, I think she had a couple drinks and it was, it was a mess. <laughs> she was definitely trying to cancel me. With she was, a, And her avatar was like her and a picture of Joe Biden with her arms around each other. I was like, oof, I am not in Kansas anymore. <laughs> um, so yeah, I, you do have to caveat a lot of things. And there are t- t- subjects. I talked about this in the David Chappelle episode. There are subjects that I both understand that I'm not necessarily the best to talk about. And so I, I offer a lot of qualifications. But also that I know that if I make a misstep I am more likely to be shunned than if I made a a misstep in another area, even if both missteps were kind of equally rooted in ignorance and not malice or anything like that. And that is, that does, that does change my, that does affect my decision-making on what to cover at a given time, you know? Yeah. It's not, it's not me being canceled, you know, and you can say like, you know, tiniest violin in the world for me, if I, Don't know this already. And how can you be, you know, on this earth and not know the right thing to say in the given context? And, you know, it's not my job to teach you. These are the kind of things people say. I don't subscribe to that. I don't subscribe to that when I'm talking about my own issues, black issues. I've never had that attitude toward people who say ignorant things about, you know, like literally ignorant, like uh, like lacking in knowledge about black people. Um, and I hope to have for other people to bring the same grace to the equation. But as we saw with the last media cycle of me being called an anti-Semite for like the third time this year, it's not even Stevens. <laughs>
7: mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. Um, but thank you, Ethan. I appreciate you listening. It makes me feel really nice to know that there's a ideological diversity among the the listeners. Um, and I am actually going to be having a conversation with uh Glenn Lowry at Brown next month and doing another one with Thomas Chatterson Williams about a week later in Colorado. So if anyone's in any of those places, just stop by. Awesome. (laughs) All right. Thanks for taking my call. Of course. Take care. YOLO. What are you up to tonight? Uh, Meet yourself and, and tell me what's on your mind.
15: Can you hear me? I can, yellow. Hi, Brianna. Uh, thanks so much for taking my call. I just I just want to say I'm a huge fan. Um, I also voted for GL Stein. Uh, <laughs> um, whoop, whoop. Just to, yeah.
7: <laughs> and I just
15: want to say, I know you get a lot of flack for people, you know, saying, oh, you keep up bringing up force a vote and you should just, you know, let that go. But I really appreciate, I, I know I'm just one person. But I want to let you know that I really appreciate that you do bring that up because I do think it's important. That there, you're right. There is that division, you know, uh, between people that were supporting it and people that weren't. And those, it's just, we keep coming back to that. Um, but uh, to my question, it, it does tie back to um, the Ukraine uh, crisis um, in a, you know, kind of a roundabout way. But, and I know it's a very contentious issue on the left. But I did want to bring up and discuss a possible solution. That I've just been thinking about for a while, Mm -hmm. Um, since I've been so demoralized, you know, about electoral politics. Just watching 2016 and 2020, you know, with Bernie just being—I just felt cheated or just conned in so many ways. The the closer I watched, the, the more I just saw how outwardly corrupt the Democratic Party is, and and they'll go to any length and just play super dirty to undermine him. And I felt they did that in both. 2016 2020 um just out in the open and Mm -hmm. i was just so shocked that the general public my family friends people just didn't care they didn't know and then they turned around and voted for biden or hillary and it just didn't you know I, I guess I just get so frustrated that it's like, how many times do we have to, you know, support the Democrats, you know, and have them spit in our eyes and cheat, you know, and pull all the all the you know strings to to make their corporate candidate win? And when will we, you know, give up? Well, not give up, but but stop doing this. And so I've been thinking about just how um, I, I know it's very controversial, but I I, I do see a really interesting possible solution. Um, I'm kind of coming at it from more of a socialist libertarian's perspective. Mm -hmm. Um, But my my brainstorming kind of thinking has come to, well, why... We've spent millions of dollars, like every time we run a progressive candidate, whether Green or Democrat, whatever part, MPP, there's millions of dollars poured into that. And I see that happening. And Bernie, you know, I, I forget the exact number, but like over 300 million into his primary mm-hmm. in 2020. You know, and all that money, I feel like could go towards, you know, our own economy, our own progressive economy. And, and what I'm coming to is, is, um, smart contracts with crypto and i know crypto is very controversial but i feel like it it, it's possible it could be used in a way that is environmentally friendly um but could also bolster our own economy within this greater economy where yeah okay these 300 million could be used to as a you know some of it could be allocated as a bereavement fund to actually help people in need to cancel certain people's debt um and that could be dictated and controlled by a system that doesn't have corruptible politicians, whether the progressive um, would try to eliminate or reduce it by, you know, implementing small fees on transactions. And those fees would go towards maybe, you know, pennies of, of a transaction goes towards a healthcare fund, an education fund, different funds that I see, you know, churches. It's really interesting. I see churches doing this, like the Mormon Church and some of my family that that's part of. You know, other Christian denominations—they're creating their own like private healthcare like system. Um, where if you're in the church, you get, you know, you get healthcare. The Mormon Church, I think, is m- much bigger on that, and but they take like 10% of your paycheck, you know, mm-hmm. automatically out of your bank account. But I was just thinking, why can't we have a global progressive? currency which would do all these things automatically programmatically in code that would be fully auditable run on a blockchain um, that you know that's more environmentally friendly just help
2: me understand though I I, I don't understand crypto and that's not for want of trying I just don't get the point so I'm actually interviewing Grace Blakely tomorrow um, British economist she's been on the show before and I'm going to be asking her about this stuff So Monday's episode subscribe hashtag Patreon, blah, blah, blah. But I, I don't understand, help me understand what the benefit, like I'm totally with you on the idea as we've been talking about of channeling the resources that are going to electoralism into different projects of having more Matt Brinig style organizations, you know, paid positions for people to do organizing work. So they're not, you know, hanging out here and easily corrupted. But what, what does, what does crypto add to that?
15: Um, so a few things. Um, I think crypto is really important because, as we saw with Black Lives Matter, Edward Snowden, Chelsea Manning, you know, other whistleblowers, but also even even the you know Canadian trucker protests. You know that governments are freezing the accounts of people that protesters, whether they're on the left or the right, that are engaging in effective protest. And crypto, one of the benefits of it is that you're able to control your assets in your own private wallet, and it can't be seized. It can't be frozen by the government. So I think that's really important for, you know, climate protesters. Same thing, you know, if they try to block the uh, construction of a pipeline, their assets can be frozen, you know, preventing them from, you know, or disincentivizing them from continuing or making it diff- very difficult to survive. And so I think that's very important to have that autonomy from the state Um to be able to trade, you know, and that's one way Edward Snowden, Chelsea Manning, others have been able to, were able to survive mm-hmm. when the US government froze their accounts. You know, uh, Julian Assange very, very important. He, he survived on Bitcoin. Uh, there's other currencies that I think are more important They're much better than Bitcoin that are out there. Um, but but he, they, he, the, the, the point is they're able to survive despite, you know, having all their assets removed. Um, but another another important thing with crypto is not just about money; it's also about automating, putting laws into code. So no, we're no longer relying on corruptible politicians, even ones who, like AOC, I do think her heart is in the right place. I do think she's, you know, becoming a, a useful idiot, as Marx would say, you know, um, and, and kind of playing this longer game, I guess, strategy. Um, which is i think is very disappointing but but we can implement systems that we're not trusting someone we can the you know developers around the world can look at the code and audit it and a smart contract what it can do is you can let's say there's a smart contract for healthcare you can you can buy into that maybe like a dollar a day well, wait a minute. and but, but in like, that that can actually I, automatically pay I don't, out for you know but i don't uh, understand what i expenses.
2: don't understand is what what like It's an, it's all at the end of the day, an authentication issue. I don't see healthcare as an authentication, like the benefit of, of blockchain is authentication. I don't, and I understand that it allows you to like authenticate financial transactions without using banks. And therefore you can have private money in the ways that you described. I understand that in terms of just a way to keep your resources. I don't understand why this should have any legislative application because the problem with their laws is not that they are inauthentic or being changed without our knowledge or anything like that. It's that they're just bad (laughs) because we have a corrupted democracy that isn't really a democracy and our laws don't reflect the people's needs. And I don't see how crypto, you know, is germane to that.
15: Well, I think that, um, there is, so for example, there, Crypto can be more than just money. it can be um, a system that you know that that can has have controls for laws. Um, Ethereum is an example. it's not just a crypto it's it's a network it's a global computer but, but help and, me, and help I think, me
2: understand what's the problem what's the problem that you've identified that crypto is solving with respect to laws
15: um, The problem that I can I see that it can uh, solve is the corruptibility of our politicians, the people that we elect, um, you know, that they, you know, we, even if we have someone like Shama Swan, you know, who I, you know, I think is it's the best example of this. Maybe when she gets into power and into federal government that she might, you know, become co-opted or, uh, you know, feel like she has to play a long game and kind of run cover for the democratic party, which I feel lots of progressives do. Mm -hmm. Um, we can create uh, an automated system that that people can buy into that um, uh, like an insurance system is you can think of it as an insurance system like people buy into insurance you have a huge pool of money and you know money is is is, is taken out you know depending on if, if someone needs care I do see crypto is already solving that there I, there but, are but, insurance but, systems but yellow, that will pay but, out automatically
2: but yellow, uh, the, so we just we just Forgive me if I'm just not understanding, it, but we just leaped yeah. from politicians are corruptible and they don't yep. legislate in the people's interest to right. it's an insurance system that pays out automatically, and we can get into the idea of wh- why whether you want your health care to be publicly housed in a way that feels you know HIPAA problematic, but just to this the, the initial problem you identified of, as of politicians being corruptible, I'm not I'm still not seeing how crypto relate.
15: Oh,
2: what is the relationship? Oh. Are, are they being paid? Oh, in sure, crypto? Like sure. I don't understand why crypto is a thing here.
15: Yeah. Yeah. So crypto, um, you can create laws basically in crypto. Um, they're called smart contracts that are. Um, so let's say for like in health insurance or some sort of system that we want that covers, you know, everyone who's bought in that will execute automatically. Let's say, you know, th- the Republicans want to say, no, you can't but I, sorry, you know, have trans the, treatment or a, uh, a law, a,
2: a contract is not a law. A contract is not a law. So so the issue is we, we laws get passed through a legislative process. And our problem is that we're not getting laws on the books passed through a legislative process that are good for the people, for all the reasons that we understand in the, the Senate being anti-democratic and the system being structured so that the masses don't have rights intentionally by the founding fathers and all of the things, money and politics, all of the things. And so I understand what you're saying. seems to be that, you know, if you had a law, you could set up a system where people were automatically able to get benefits from the government without having to apply and things would be automatically put out and stuff like that. But that is not addressing, I think that first order, Problem. And maybe you're not saying that it does and should, but I thought, I thought that was what you had identified as the first order issue here.
15: No, no, I think you're right. I just haven't made the connection. Um, so my, my proposal is that we, um, in, in some cases, um, we kind of bypass that and we crypt, so cer- certain, cryptos, they can become their own governments. We were essentially <sighs> setting up our own government within a government <laughs> No, which is which is what churches, corporations, all these organizations are. It, it's setting about up its those own.
2: Institutions,
15: oh, oh, I know. And and neither am I. Are our model. <laughs> no, no, but, but I, I just mean to say that we we can create our own system that's that you know own governmental system that's automated, that it's fully transparent. What what the rules are and they're enforced automatically by computers. Mm. You know, into a contractual system that you can buy into. Um, or, or leave if you don't want to. Um, but but yeah, a system, a government within a government, basically. Um, okay,
2: you know, I, I, I'm sure you can appreciate why this is, is yeah. giving me pause. Because sure. no, as I much understand. as I am very frustrated with what we've got going on here, like the democracy part of it, in theory, I'm a fan of. The idea right. of some kind of people's check and balance, in theory, is something that I, I'm not willing to... You know, it, you know, there are people who say the government is screwed up, so let's let private industry do everything. I mean, that's what libertarians say. And there's people who right. always want to deflect to some other issue. And I'm like, well, the government is effed up. I'm with you. But the problem is that there's not – the people's interests and needs are not reflected. And I have a belief, maybe misplaced, maybe time will prove me wrong, that the, the out of all the, the people, the bad options out there for who's going to control and run the world – Democracy is the best, you know, the people's will at an aggregate is the best option and some kind of democratic process. And the idea of offshoring, you know, setting up some separate government that a computer is in charge, not even like a benevolent dictator, but a computer, it's giving me a little bit, it's giving me, it's giving me RoboCop, you know?
15: Oh, yeah, <laughs> it's yeah. Me,
2: I'm... Uh, I'll be back. What's that one? The, the guy with the governor in the office. Terminator? Austrian. Terminator. It's giving me Terminator. <laughs>
15: Yeah, um, I, I think it, it, this is benevolent, because it, it's not a centralized computer. Um, it's a decentralized one that's run just like the internet, you know, just the centralized servers around the world. Uh-huh. This is run by a decentralized database, and uh, code that that is distributed around the world. So it can't, first of all, can't be shut down. And second of all, you know, anyone can buy into it. Um, and, and, and at all the code that runs it is fully transparent. Um, just like one of uh, the people you bring on, I forgot her name. I, I love her work where she goes into the law, you know, and has her podcast about them, how there's all these awful things, you know, snuck into laws, um, you know, um, this kind of system. Oh, Jim system, Briney with
2: her dingleberry? Yes.
15: Yes. Yeah, I, I love, I love, love her just, work. I
2: love her, Yeah. <laughs>
15: <laughs> um but but this kind of system's fully transparent so you can see what actual you know different um so-called laws would do um and you can opt into them if you if you okay if you yo, are, look or not i know I, it's I'm it's open really to out the there, idea but...
2: of me being wrong but look drop it if you yeah. have if someone's written about this or given a lecture about this sure. or something done a youtube video drop it in the comments of this of this of this, of this uh, episode when it posts. And let's all, let's talk about it. Let's let's hear totally. it out. Let's see. And I will be, you know, I, I got to wrap this call up soon because I sure, have a lot sure. of sitting to do before my interview with um, Grace tomorrow. Because as evidenced by our exchange, I know nothing about Bitcoin and have to learn enough to at least ask her an informed question. Uh, sure, sure. But I look, I appreciate you raising it i appreciate you
15: yellow (laughs) yeah no no i I appreciate i just want to say one last thing is the the first guy who talked about kind of making a um a party into kind of a game a video Mm -hmm. game kind of system this is kind of a similar idea there's already games i was thinking about that Rewarding people with tokens you know for certain things you know that are done to support the party or whatever you know um but I'll leave it at
2: that. Yeah, no, I was I really appreciate him you hearing me. We you were out. talking and, and yep. the two of you together were giving me all the red flags, but you <laughs> yeah. know, I am happy to hear it out. I, it's just totally. it's going to be a longer conversation it sounds like. But thank you for oh, calling. Oh, definitely. Me
15: thank you so much. <laughs> Talk to you later.
2: Of course. Um Cade, Cade, you're up next. Let's hear from you.
3: Um it's Cade, but yeah, um I've been following um, your work for quite a while um, and I guess I'd say there's two things that have sort of contributed to my I guess political radicalization sadly I unlike you and YOLO did not um, did not vote for Jill Stein in 2016 I I mean I voted for Bernie but then I I did eventually follow his lead and vote for Hillary Clinton which I kind of regret mm-hmm. um, but I guess the two factors oh, that sorry that was right. the
2: wrong button <laughs>
3: The Sorry, go two ahead. Factors that have, yeah, the two factors that have kind of contributed to my radicalization are, one, I'm from Michigan. Um, and so watching the Flint water crisis, both with Rick Snyder's, you know, awful evil corruption and um, and then the Democrats utter failure to, you know, Obama drinking the water, uh, Biden mm-hmm. accepting Snyder's endorsement. Um, and mm-hmm. now Whitmer and Nessel just, you know, refusing to seriously prosecute him for manslaughter or murder. I, I mm-hmm. can't vote for, for Whitmer and Nestle. I voted for them also in 2018 and I can't do it this year in 2022. I'm not going to. Um, so that's, I guess, one element of the recognition. The other thing is you, um, with your interview of Chomsky and, um, force the vote, um, the work that you did on that. Um, so I, I, I guess I'm totally on board with leaving the democratic party and I just want to know how we're going to get there. Um, and you had a caller, I, I believe Jam who was talking about how we have to start local. Um, and I guess just in Michigan, I feel like we can't start um, local in part because we have straight ticket voting. So people check mm-hmm. um, you Democrat or Republican at the top of their ballot, and it just then they automatically vote Democrat for all the, de- for all the partisan. Nominations and then they do have to then vote on like the judicial nominees and stuff in a nonpartisan section. Um, but so if you're local and you're not running on the Democratic line or the Republican line, you need a strong national third party or at least statewide. You need like at least a governor or something that's gonna have some coattails because you're gonna be running. Mm -hmm. And if if someone's voting for the top of the ticket and they're just voting straight ticket, you can have like 20,000 you know, you're going to start with a huge, huge deficit of votes. So I just don't really see how it can be done locally. And I guess that's why I always look to the national stuff um, Mm -hmm. so much. And I see, like, I guess I was, I was really enthusiastic, I guess, not just about Tlaib um, giving, which I wasn't terribly inspired actually by her response, but um, I was glad that she gave one because that's sort of a, you know, a bold move, and then also I I liked seeing Jayapal Paul throw shade at her just because, like you, I don't trust Jayapal Paul at all, um, mm-hmm. and so I want that I want a schism between Jayapal Paul and any members of the squad um, who are actually going to re- willing to vote as a block, and I'm I'm worried it might have happened too late because we we really needed either you know a presidential candidate who was you know going to answer the question differently than differently than bernie did when asked you know are you going to support the democratic nominee no matter what um we either need you know, we need some big national movement out of the democratic party and to me it has to either be like members of congress leaving or a presidential primary which, where you know they take all the energy from the primary and they say you know we're going to have these following demands and if they're not met we're leaving the party um so i guess just I guess I just wanted to push back a little on the idea that we need to start local and also say that, mm-hmm. yeah, you know, I really, really am glad to see that from that rift maybe growing between Talib and Jayapal.
2: Yeah, I hear that. Uh, I think it came up on the podcast today, uh, with David Sirota, you know, and part of his response to my question about whether he thinks this is like a real rift, if this is a real thing, breakaway movement that uh, uh, Talib is trying to start here. Uh, He's sort of talking about fusion voting and how hard both parties have worked against people's ability to, you know, vote for other parties on that ballot line, you know. Um, and I, I believe it was Michael Moore who, in his movie, talked about how I think there was like twenty thousand people in Michigan, like a like a state flipping number of people for Hillary in twenty sixteen yeah. that chose, yeah, said, think- you know, to leave the top of the ticket blank. Yeah. Um,
3: yeah, he said that. I- it, Think about yeah, thirty thousand people. I think actually just in Flint,
7: um,
3: just in Flint, are, Jesus. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that's obviously long. Yeah, I'm not sure where you got the number from, but I yeah, yeah I, so, I have a clip of that. I, 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 that I, I watched every once in a while.
2: <laughs> yeah, so I appreciate that. That is a true thing, you know. Sometimes, look, I confess that I. Don't have as much intrinsic interest in local politics. I just don't. I, I I went out with someone who I was just hanging out with someone who um, like is working for a mayoral campaign here, and. I was like shamed out of how much, how little I, it was like, what war do you live in? I was like, oh, no, like (laughs) how little I know about it. And like, here I am with my big girl britches on, like lecturing everybody on the internet every day, you know, like put me in my place. I don't know anything about local politics. It's true. I have a less of an intrinsic interest in it. And part of it is that I do have that like horse race lust, like everyone else, you know, I'm guilty of it. So I do, I am when people say start local, I want to listen to that. I want to check my baser instincts. I want to be better. But also I'm cognizant of the fact that I'm not the only one with that appetite. And sometimes it's like when people say organize, it's like, yeah, like I'm totally with you. But I look look at myself and I'm like, I know that I care very much and I'm not organizing. So what are the barriers to me doing it? What and how can I capitalize on the things that do excite me? to get people like me to do the things that need to be done. Right. And so I feel very similarly with this, like, yeah, I like, I agree that there's so much that happens locally. That's really important. And we should figure out how to make that interesting to people because honestly, right now it's not. And also to your point, Cade, like there are all these structural barriers as well to wanting to, uh, have a non-democratic party local. Um, I think that's a good point. I think that we, at very least, should be talking. I mean, imagine if in her speech, uh, Rashida had been, like, actually critical of the Democratic Party, not just, uh, cool. you know, espousing the values of a working family, quote-unquote, party, but said, you know, actually you heard Joe Biden say a lot of things that he said he was going to run on, but he hasn't shown a lot of political interest in passing those things, that it's not just managed in cinema, but there's a bunch of my colleagues who behind closed doors have no interest in, in passing the people's agenda. And moreover, Joe Biden for the first time in the last 30 years, hasn't mentioned student debt in the state of the union, even though he explicitly ran on the promise to cancel it. And by the way, here are these other executive orders he can do. And as a Democrat, who's begging people to come and vote for Democrats in, uh later this year, It's unconscionable that he's not being held accountable by members of his own party. And this is what the Working Families Party would do.
3: Yeah. And then then you'd have people in local office who could say, you know, regardless of whether she's actually technically a Democrat or not, um, I'm going to go to Congress and I'm going to be like her. I'm not going to be or I'm going to go to this local body of government and I'm going to follow in her footsteps. And that's that's why I guess that's why I feel like Sanders not, you know, making some demands that he public demands that he You know, you would have left the Democratic Party and endorsed a third party candidate or ran as a third party um, if they weren't met and also forced the vote where, you know, they could have held they could have held up Pelosi's nomination. And even if they were just like fighting for even if they weren't going to win a vote for Medicare for all, they would have been like fighting to have the vote and Pelosi would have been saying no. And then we would have had like a big spectacle of, Mm -hmm. you know, I don't know, three days of. Maybe nine rounds of voting like happened, you know, back in the day. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, I mean, I guess just as a byproduct of that, you'd never have had, um, never have had the whole—I don't know if we want to call it an insurrection or whatever—happened on January 6th, But that would have just been totally overshadowed by the fact that there was a actual real, um, you know, obstacle to Pelosi becoming speaker. Um, I that—that mean, you know, that I yeah. kind of predicted, but like, I—I yeah. I just that moment. Was so valuable, and so it was the the end of Bernie's run. And I don't I don't know if we'll really have a real opportunity like that again. I guess I hope someone like Marion Williamson runs, and I hope if they do, they say, you know, I, I won't commit to voting for the Democratic nominee. I'm gonna sign on the uh, ultimatum along with all of my um, and ask ask any people supporting me to do the same thing that says we're only gonna vote for the Democratic nominee if they're you know if there's someone like me who supports these we'll sign these executive orders into law and do a whole bunch more. Or if there's some sort of corporatist like Joe Biden, they've also got to sign, they've got to at least just sign blank number of executive orders off the list. But I feel like we've got to have some sort of fight that indicates that there's a real split. It shows like normal people that there's a real split between the Democrats, the corporate Democrats, and whether or not they're in the democratic party or voting third party, you know, real progressives who aren't bought and owned.
2: Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of talk about uh, how AOC and the squad members feature in Republican attack ads across the country, but numbers wise, Nancy Pelosi features in as many or more as they do. She is a toxic association for Democrats who has spent the last like few months being most known for acting like a petulant child in the face of legislation that would prevent her from doing insider trading, (laughs) you know, so. The fact that in the context of force the vote, there wasn't even a conversation about the benefits to the party by being very publicly seen as distancing themselves by someone who was as toxic and maligned as Nancy Pelosi. In my article about force the vote, which everyone liked to pretend didn't exist, I made this exact point that she that uh, 75% of Americans want her to step down or something like that. Like Overwhelmingly, people are not here for her. And some of the Democrats, they don't hate her, but they're like, her time is over you know respectfully in that same kind of rg rbg vibes like your time you know you need to step down so given that's the case the fact that people would rather you know still clinging her to their bosom but they didn't see it as an act of self-preservation to jettison this woman when they had the opportunity is is a real uh loss in my opinion so thank you for calling in Cade. Um, i
3: and then i guess actually just one thing on that note um i I can't believe that like Pelosi is just getting away with running again after she'd committed to not um, not be Speaker again. Um,
2: yeah, well, I think that we know. should talk to um,
3: Shahid, Shahid Buttar.
2: Buttar. We need to have him back on the show, and I think the left needs to really think seriously about the fa- how they declined to take him seriously in the past. The left was not taking Shahid Buttar seriously even before the Me Too allegations, which – we're vetted, it seems, and reporting from the intercept and others seems to have found no there there." and the quality of the you know the kind of accusation it certainly didn't rise to a, a number of other accusations, including those that were leveraged against Joe Biden. Um, you know, there was no like personal sexual misconduct. it was like being a bad boss kind of vibes, you know so i I like we, the left needs to have a conversation about that. The left needs to have a conversation about it. like all of the big brain serious lefties, you know who they are. Refused to take him seriously because they didn't think he could win. And that loser energy where we refuse to lift up our own because you don't want to be seen as someone who fought and failed is a real problem on the left. And, I, you know, I am really looking forward to championing his efforts this time around because uh, Nancy Pelosi should be, you know, a metaphorically, not literally, but a metaphorically marked, politically marked woman at this point
3: yeah i i totally agree i almost can't i i can't believe she's kind of going back on that promise just because i guess i don't know maybe she doesn't have to go back on the promise because she's counting on the democrats losing in the house and um having a minority so she won't be speaker technically she'll just be minority leader i i don't mm-hmm. know what the theory is but it it shocked me um just because i don't know or maybe she's gonna resign after she beats shahid Buttar, and then the governor kind of california can maybe mm-hmm. appoint you know, some corporate Democrat. I don't know what exactly the scheme is there, but it just I i would have thought, like, at least if she was going to go back on that promise that we'd hopefully get. Yeah. You know, the whole squad, Bernie, everyone endorse Shahid Bittar, or If they can't stand him for some reason, you know, find someone else. Find if, someone if else. California, but there's so no that.
2: excuses for them not to be an option. I'm with you, Kate. Thank you for calling in.
3: Yeah. Um, thanks for all your work.
2: Thank you. Uh, So we've gone over two hours. I see you, Chris and Masha and the good Reverend and Rob and Stephen Case. I see you all. And I think that what I want to do next time is not maybe go through the queue chronologically because those of you who are regular callers, you're really good with the – it's like, a, it's like a, a cowboy standoff thing and you're like really good with the trigger <laughs> and you are always like front loaded and I really appreciate that and the enthusiasm, but I also want to give some people from the back of the list a try. So I'm going to think of a system that seems equitable to hop around a little bit so I can get to some of these folks who aren't quite so quick. Uh, so I look forward to talking to you on Monday. Like I said, we're going to have a great episode. We will put a video clip up so that non-subscribers can listen. But as always, I appreciate it. If you can afford to subscribe to subscribe because we've got some great content and some excellent back catalogs of episodes for you to consume at this point. Props and many thanks to everyone who clips episodes of this show uh, so that I can push into social media. A transcript gets printed of this as soon as I publish it. And you can, in the app, clip like a minute or two. Maybe it's when you spoke. Maybe it was when something was said that you that really resonated with you. And it appears in like the feed of this episode for me. And then I can push it to social. You can download it as an audiogram and you can push it to social. And it's a really nice feature. Additionally, chat, live chat was supposed to be enabled on this now. I don't know if I didn't see it because I didn't update my phone or redownload the app or whatever. But let me know how that goes if you saw it and I will make sure that that's in effect for the next episode as well. Please take care of yourselves and as always, keep the faith. Slide
7: some oil to me let it slip down the spine. If you don't have a STP, crystal will be just fine. Slide some oil to me Hit my shoulder blade. All y'all that don't have to lubricate sure have got it made. Slide some oil to